But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. What? If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor. What difference at this point does it make? If you're looking to make sense out of what's going on in the world today, then you've come to the right place. Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, Annie, the Radio Chicky Bellis, and featuring Curtis C.S. Bennett and the most interesting guests that you'll find anywhere on Internet radio. And you can join the show and let your voice be heard by dialing 917-889-3675. So sit back, relax, and remember, Southern Sense is Common Sense. reality. Emergencies usually strike without warning. We're surprised when the stock market crashes or power goes out. Certainly, with earthquakes, there's no warning. These things happen. And when it's breaking news, it's too late to prepare. Now you're scrambling and panicked. Best thing to do is prepare for natural disasters or emergency situations while things are still calm. So ask yourself right now, could you feed yourself or your family for two weeks with the food you have at home at this moment? If not, it's time to act and secure an emergency food supply. I use my Patriot Supply. And you should, too. A two-week food kit will get you started. This week, it's on sale for only $75 when you go to my special website, preparewithsouthernsense.com, or call 888-441-7290. These food kits include meals that last up to 25 years in storage. So order now and prepare yourself so there are no surprises. Just call 888-441-7290 or go to preparewithsouthernsense.com. Forget about it. If you can't remember the phone number, 888-441-7290, and you can't remember preparewithsouthernsense.com, you know the name of the show. It's Southern Sense. Put a dash in the middle southern-sense.com, 
and click on My Patriot Supply. So check it out. Good afternoon and welcome to a Memorial Day weekend. You're here listening to Seven Cents Live on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, the Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, YouTube, Facebook, all the heck with it. Go to the name of the show, put a hyphen in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, and I'm waiting for Curtis to show up. And believe it or not, he is going to be here live in the studio with me momentarily uh, as he and his wife are just coming up the front steps. Uh, so hopefully I'll have Curtis here within a few moments. want to welcome everyone that is listening in in the chat room as well as that's up on Facebook, YouTube, uh, everywhere else. Uh, welcome aboard. And we got ourselves a great show lined up. Uh, we're going to have a surprise guest, just someone that confirmed only yesterday afternoon, Film McAleer. There is a new movie going to be made. It's going to be filmed live on stage in Washington, D.C. next month in just a couple of weeks. And it's going to be called FBI Lovebirds Undercover. It is the actual, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, uh, transcript of the emails between Peter Strzok and Lisa, Lisa Page, including the behind-the-door testimony. And they're going to be performing this live on stage in the heart of the swamp in Washington, D.C. And we'll be talking to him about that. Uh, then we have a friend of mine, uh, a uh, fellow Tea Partier, and uh, Emery McClendon. He's going to be joining us uh, later on. And we're going to finish off the show with the guest we missed last week, Bill Hyland. Um, the reason why he was late last week uh, was because he ended up in court. So, he, of course, the judge was not going to let him go. Uh, so we got still a rocking and rolling good show. Uh, we're going to take a very short break because I've got uh, Curtis here with me right now. And I want to work on helping him get himself set up. Uh, so we will be back in just a few minutes. So just bear with us and listen to Big Don. Okay, it's not playing. Big Don. Big Don. Every morning all time you can see him arrive. He stood six foot three and weighed two thirty five, kinda of broad at the shoulder and fast with the lip. And everybody knew you didn't give no shit to Big Don. Big Don. Big Don. Big Bad Don. Through the dust and the smoke of this Democrat hell walked a giant of a man that the Patriots knew well. Grabbed a sagging economy and let out with the throne. And like a mighty oak tree just stood there alone. Big Don. Talking about our man Donald Trump, he's the president now, and all you chumps can just settle down and stay in your safe space. We're about to make America a better place for Big Don. Big Don, Big Don, Big Bad Don. Got problems to be solved, and the Democrats shouted, The Russians are involved. Brought out their special counsel with Robert Mueller. Too bad the wall just got 10 feet taller with Big Don. Well, they will lie and cheat, 
steal and threaten and pander to illegals before our veterans. But we're over these liberals loading our country in a hearse. It's about time to put America first with Big Dawn. Big Dawn. Big Dawn. Big Bad Dawn. Gonna put these criminals where they belong. We got people like Hannity and Julian Assange and all the centipedes following QAnon and Americans like me just singing my song for Big Dog. The path ain't easy because the devil's working hard, but we got God on our side and he's playing his trump card. Just remember, my countrymen, to always stick together. Fake news can't stop us from making this world better with Big Dog. Big Dog. Big Dawn, Big Bad Dawn. When it's all said and done, America will be great and we'll build a statue just to commemorate a great man with these words on the slate. Thanks to the people's power, a man came from his tower to save America in its final hour. Big Dawn, Big Dawn. Big Dawn, Big Bad Dawn. All right, and we're back. We're here in the studio live with Curtis at my side. Curtis, you got to belly up to the microphone there. <laughs> Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> All right. If you're if you're watching up on Facebook and YouTube, you're probably looking at the screen going, "What the is going on over there?" So I've got one camera on Curtis and one camera on me, and my office is all backwards uh, because my main computer crashed last week, and the guy that fixed it made it worse. So I've got everything backwards in my office. I'm not sitting where I normally sit. You don't normally see me the way I normally am. But we'll make it work. We'll make it work. Oh, yes, we will. (laughs) (laughs) We can. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, I I don't even know where I'm starting off with. (laughs) We're so fast-awkward today. Anyway, uh, this is the kickoff to Memorial Day weekend. And I wanted to mention this last week because I came across this article last week. And you know what the honor flight is. That is where they take the World War II veterans, and now they're doing it with Korean War veterans as well as uh, Vietnam vets. And they fly them to the memorials across the country as well as to the battlefields such as Normandy and so forth. Um, And this, I'm going to read this. This was from fox59.com. And reads, a World War II veteran who flew to Washington as part of honor flight collapsed and died during the return trip to San Diego. The organization that organized the flight said, Frank Manchel, 95, was accompanied by his son Bruce on the trip organized by Honor Flight San Diego. On Sunday, he boarded the flight home from Baltimore, Washington International Airport to San Diego after spending the weekend in Washington, D.C., During the flight, Menkel collapsed. Others on the flight tried to resuscitate Menkel, but he was pronounced dead. Menkel was a sergeant in the U.S. Army during World War II. Bruce Menkel said the honor flight was an amazing last experience for his father. Frank Menkel was so excited to go on his honor flight. This trip was so special because he was able to be both 
with both of his sons, as well as his 93-year-old brother, who met him in D.C. My father's passing was the ending of the most amazing weekend. Surrounded by his newest best friends, we thank all of you. Honor Flight San Diego, American and Airlines, San Diego International Airport, friends and supporters for your concern and for allowing the weekend to be so special for all of us to share together. Minkle's body was draped in an American flag that organizers bring on every honor flight. As he was brought off the plane, he was saluted by medical, firefighter, and law enforcement personnel at Lindbergh Airport. Isn't that wonderful? I mean, not the fact that the man died, but the very last thing he did was the honor flight with his two sons and his brother. I would say it was a fitting ending for a true warrior and defender of our, our country and our liberties. I mean, what, what better way to go out than to, um, you know, be so honored and have your brother and your two sons there with you? I mean, I think that's fantastic. It's a wonderful story. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we're honoring Veterans Day, and today we're kicking it off. And most people, uh, not Veterans Day, I'm sorry. Little Memorial. Memorial Day, a little brain fart there, Annie. Um, but everyone thinks of Memorial Day as the start of the summer. They're out there for the hot dogs, for the games, for the races, for whatever. And what is forgotten is the true meaning of Memorial Day. You know, it, it, Memorial Day started after uh, the Civil War, and it was called Decoration Day. And it wasn't a national holiday. You know, states did it on their own. Sometime one weekend in the May, one day, you know, but they would do it to remember the Civil War dead. And you got to remember, the Civil War had the largest American casualties, military casualties. 620,000, I believe. Yeah, the largest in, in, the, in the entire United States. It, more than World War II, more than World War I, Vietnam, any war you put. Probably combined. Combined. And uh, in a little town in upstate New York, the very first Memorial Day was held. And if you're looking at the um, the video uh, or the pictures on the screen, there's a picture of the name of the town across Waterloo, New York. And they had their first on May 5th of 1866, just one year after the war ended. And they are now known as the birthplace of Memorial Day, even though it was called Decoration Day. And we didn't call it Memorial Day until um, – and recognized it as a federal holiday until 1971, over 100 years after the wow. start of that tradition. I thought it was set in stone by then. No. Well, 100 years later. Well, before then. Yeah. Wow. So it's it's an amazing, amazing story that you know people don't pay attention to. And I got a friend of mine that sent me uh, something. Uh, Captain Joseph R. John, and he wrote in recognition of Americans and patriots. And he wrote on this piece, which he sent out, uh, which is going to be his op-ed in his his uh, uh, blog uh, this weekend. And he wrote, since General George Washington commanded the Continental Army, 42 million Americans have served under the American flag. Think about that, 42 million in the past 243 years, 
One million American military personnel have been killed in the defense of the Republic, and another million and a half have been wounded. Each year on Memorial Day weekend, we honor American patriots who have given the last full measure of devotion in their service to the Republic so their fellow Americans could live their lives in freedom. We not only honor American combat veterans who gave up their tomorrows, we also honor very veterans who were wounded and other members of the U.S. Armed Forces who were separated from their loved ones for long periods, often going into harm's way. On this Memorial Day weekend, the Republic's most sacred and cherished patriotic holiday, the nation solemnly pays homage to the thousands of Gold Star families for the loss of their loved ones and the enormity of their sacrifice. On Memorial Day and every day throughout the year, we also honor 23 million veterans who served in the defense of the Republic. America owes these veterans a debt of gratitude that can never be repaid. At one point in their lives, all these veterans wrote a blank check made payable to the United States of America for an amount up to and including their lives. There's a link on his blog, so if you do go to it, there's a YouTube, a video uh, why I stand in honor of America's fallen wounded warriors. And he finishes up with Americans should ensure that the nation's youth are taught in their U.S. history courses in schools and in their homes to never forget the enormity of the sacrifice made through the ages by millions of American patriots that protected and defended the freedoms they enjoy, like Captain Joseph R. Johns. And he is the chairman of the Combat Veterans for Congress PAC, where you can find his work up at combatveteransforcongress.org. Wow. You know, what stands out the most to me on Memorial Day is um, the way we honor our dead um, at Arlington National Cemetery, especially the Tomb of the Unknown Soldiers. I had the um, privilege of... um, being there one time when I was in D.C. and to watch the changing of the guards. And I would have to say we should all get opportunity to to go to the tomb of the unknown soldiers and, and just see how our fellow, you know, servicemen never forget our soldiers, even those who are missing in action and those who are buried there as unknown. So I have to say that um, I appreciate, you know, being here in the United States where we don't forget our military. Yeah, yeah. So this is a very important weekend. And, you know, consider also that uh, President Trump just declared that he's sending approximately 1,000 troops over to the Middle East. Uh, So... Say a prayer for them, too, for the men and women that are still serving, that are still stepping into harm's way. So, anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, what we're going to do is I have a, um, a clip from uh, Jocko Wilnick, and he's got his own podcast. And he did this, I believe, last year, Memorial Day. And I think he says that 
better than anyone else. And let me pull up what I need to push here and just bear with me as we do Jocko's Memorial Day titled Remember Me. Remember me. I am the fallen soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. I am the one that held the line. Sometimes I volunteered. Sometimes I went because I was told to go. But when the nation called, I answered. In order to serve, I left behind the family, friends, and freedom that so many take for granted. Over time, I used different weapons. A sword, a musket, a bayonet, a rifle, a machine gun. Often, I marched into battle on foot, countless miles, across whole continents. I had little water and even less food, but it did not matter. We had a job to do. Other times, I rode to battle on horseback or in wagons, sometimes on trains, later in tanks or jeeps or Humvees. In early wars, my ships were made of wood and powered by the wind. Later, they were made of steel and powered by diesel fuel or the atom. I even took to the air and mastered the sky in planes, helicopters, and jets. The machines of war evolved and changed with the times. But remember that it was always me, the warrior, that had to fight our nation's enemies. I fought at Lexington and Concord as our nation was born. I crossed the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. Freedom was on our side. I defended the Chattahoochee River in the War of 1812. I would stand again. In the Civil War, I fought with my brothers and against my brothers at Gettysburg and Shiloh and Bull Run. I learned that we must never again divide. In World War I, I marched on the Marne and held the line at Bella Wood. The war to end all wars, they called it. I just called it hell. In World War II, I fought everywhere from the beaches of Normandy and the Battle of the Bulge to the sands of Iwo Jima and the hell of Guadalcanal. I stood against tyranny and kept darkness from consuming the world. In Korea, I landed at Incheon and broke out of the Chosen Reservoir. They called it the Forgotten War. But I never forgot in Vietnam, I went and I fought. In the Mekong Delta, and at I Drang, and Khe San, and Hamburger Hill. Some say my country wavered. But I did not waver. Ever. 
in the recent past. I fought in Granada, Panama, Somalia, and other desperate places around the globe. And finally, I have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Baghdad and Fallujah and Ramadi, in Kunar and Helmand and Kandahar. As technology advanced, I used night vision goggles and global positioning systems and drones and lasers and thermal optics. But it was still me, a human being that did the work. It was me that patrolled up the mountains or across the desert or through the streets. It was me that suffered in the merciless heat and the bitter cold. It was me that went out night after night to confront our nation's enemies and confront evil face to face. It was me. Remember me. I was a warrior. But also remember that I was not only a warrior. I was not just a soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. Remember also that I was a son, a brother, a father. I was a daughter, a sister, a mother. I was a person like you, a real person with hopes and dreams for the future. I wanted to have children. I wanted to watch my children grow up. I wanted to see my son score a touchdown or shoot the winning basket. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle. I wanted to kiss my wife again. I wanted to grow old with her and be there to hold her hand when life grew hard. When I told her I would be with her until the end, I meant it. When I told my children I would always be there for them, I meant it. But I gave all that away. All of it. On that distant battlefield, on some godforsaken patch of dirt, amongst the fear and the fire and the bullets. Or in the sky above enemy territory, filled with fatal flak. Or in the unforgiving sea, where we fought against the enemy and against the depths of the abyss. There, in those awful places, I held the line. I did not waver, and I did not hesitate. I, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine, I stood my ground and sacrificed my life. My future, my hopes, my dreams, I sacrificed everything. for you. This Memorial Day, remember me, the fallen warrior.
and remember me not for my sake, but for yours. Remember what I sacrificed so you can truly appreciate the incredible treasures you have. Life. Liberty. The pursuit of happiness. You have the joys of life, the joys that I gave up so that you can relish in them. A cool breeze in the air, the gentle spring grass on your bare feet, the warm summer sun on your face, family, friends, and freedom. Never forget where it all came from. It came from sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Don't waste it. Don't waste any of your time on this earth. Live a life that honors the sacrifice of our fallen heroes. Remember them always. And make every day Memorial Day. Today's show is dedicated to all men and women that serve in our military from the birth of this nation through today and into the future. The men and women that have given selflessly and have given the ultimate sacrifice their very lives. We also dedicate it to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders, be they in law enforcement, firefighters, emergency service. We dedicate this show to each and every one of them. May God bless them all, each and every one. And we dedicate to them this song by Todd Allen Herndon. My name is America.
Todd Allen Herndon, my name is America. We're back live. You're here listening to Sudden Sense here on Blog Talk Radio. Oh, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett, who was so jealous I called Cool Mike Handsome, and he did get called Handsome. So <laughs> since you're looking at his face now, if you're on the uh, I, uh, uh, Facebook or YouTube, you can understand why. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, anyway, like I said, we've got ourselves some great guests. Uh, we've got Phil McAleer will be uh, calling in in about uh, 20 minutes. He's going to be calling quarter of the hour. Uh, I just dropped the book. <laughs> anyway, um, I pulled up some uh, interesting stuff because the Democrats are going nuts. Uh, with I can't tell you how many people are running for, um, for office, but... Uh, I'm, I'm looking at here in the chat room, and and I, we got one troll that just is so friggin' insistent. Insistent. Yeah, yeah. And I, anyway, it's distracting anyway. Um, but they're they're going after Trump. They're going to try to impeach him. And um, I had a friend of mine, I stopped in a store, she says, you know, you're politically savvy, Annie. What do you think? Do you think Trump is asking to be impeached? And I, I looked at her and I said, think about it. If the Democrats were to go forward with an impeachment hearing and bring an indictment to the Senate, and you know it's not going to go anywhere on the floor of the Senate, if it goes that far, Trump is going to have a landslide. 
because everyone else at the rest of the voters are going to look at this going, this is now an official witch hunt. This has been going on for two and a half years. How many millions of dollars have been spent? And every time you open up a newspaper or turn on the TV or anything or the radio, you hear about Trump derangement syndrome from the left. And I I think it's a win-win. Go ahead, do it. Go for impeachment, because that just means that we're going to have a landslide in 2020. And a good example of that is in Pennsylvania, uh, former Congressman Tom Marino uh, left office in January, which triggered a special uh, election. And with that special election, Trump went down and endorsed him. And guess what? It was a landslide. And you didn't hear about it in the mainstream media? No. No, you didn't hear about it at all. Not at all. So it was, uh, we now have Representative Fred Keller. He won Pennsylvania's 12th congressional district, and Trump endorsed him. And everyone said, it's going to be, you're going to lose. Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania, which is heavily Democrat. You're from Pennsylvania. My home state. (laughs) (laughs) And instead, because of this Trump derangement syndrome, uh, the conservatives in Pennsylvania woke up. And said, "Hey, you know this. This is a money maker. This is a money maker for us. Uh, we got a caller in. Let me bring this individual in on the line. Uh, area code eight five eight. You're on the air live with Southern Sense. To whom am I speaking? Hi, this is Tommy, or or Thomas. Hi, Tommy. Hi. Um, what I wanted to talk to you was regarding Trump and and the impeachment proceedings, if they even go that far." And um, and munging. Have you ever heard of munging when someone jams a? Okay, this happens to be our troll. And he would think I would be too stupid to realize it was him. So Frank Frankerson, just go away. Go bother someone else. You think you're funny and you're not. You know he he's been popping in and out of other ch- chat rooms across <laughs> the BTR. And you know, his life is so pathetic that that is what he's reduced to. Yeah, he needs to get a, a life or a job or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but concerning Trump, um, he's a strategist, I believe. I think the longer this impeachment um, um, foray continues, the more it sucks the oxygen out of the, um, the candidates on the Democrat side. They they can't get any airtime because it's all going to be dedicated to uh, trying to get Trump impeached. What do you think about that? I think so. I think so. And you know, you've got Nancy Pelosi, who's <laughs> Trump has doubled down on her. <laughs> the name calling is going back and forth, and I I think she's actually lost her mind. <laughs> she's had too many. Faces. And she's lost control of her Democrat. She's no longer Speaker of the House. AOC is now Speaker of the House. (laughs) Think about it. Yeah, there is inner conflict, believe me. Uh, And, you know, what's happening is, you know, some of these people in Hollywood are starting to realize they can make some big bucks off of this. Trump is good for business if they play the cards right. And that comedian, Sasha uh, Baron Cohen, uh, he does all those parodies and everything. Um, he is turning around and he's got a tour 
calls This is America, where he's touring the U.S. doing you know, everything that's great about America. He's talking all the good things about America, and he's raking it in. He's a huge success on this road tour. And he said, thank you, President Trump, because you are making America great. Look at how much money I'm making. Thank you, sir. Oh, man. Uh, we got another caller in on the line, and let's see who this is. It's now area code 610. You're on the air live with Seven Cents. To whom am I speaking? So you jump on a dead body's stomach and pull all the maggots. That, again, is our troll, as if I wouldn't recognize his, his voice. <laughs> I mean, this this is, you know... That guy needs therapy. I definitely, definitely. You know, let's get him a little blanket or something. Let him crawl in the uh, in the corner and uh, <laughs> go suck his thumb. <laughs> anyway, but you know, th- this is what's happening. You know, it's anyway. Isn't it amazing how Bernie just fell off the uh, the cliff? The radar. The last, yeah, the radar too. <laughs> In the last couple of weeks since um, Biden announced and um, Beto, all of them. I mean, Kamala Harris, you don't even hear her mentioned anymore. No, no. Just occasionally they will get a soundbite in, but Biden is sucking all the air out of the uh, candidates in that in that area. But, you know, it's a long way off. And I love it. You got well about a year and a half before the election. It's not even a year and a half. And you got all these polls going, oh, so-and-so, so many points ahead. And this. What's the point? What was the purpose of it? You know, oh, the year out. Biden is leading Trump, according to the, the latest polls. Where <laughs> have we heard something like that before? <laughs> <laughs> it's a year and a half out. What is the point of even having a poll? Or an election. <laughs> I mean... Anyway, all right. Well, we this 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 guy is really distracting, but that's his point. He wants to distract us instead of having furious conversation or anything. Anyway, uh, I want to welcome everyone again that's listening in in the uh, Facebook, uh, YouTube, uh, wherever else I am up on Speaker Stitcher, half a dozen other places. Um, we're waiting for our guest to call, and film should be calling in about another two or three minutes. I want to welcome everyone that's in the chat here and also over on Facebook and everywhere else. Um, there is a lot to talk about, and uh, Curtis, what's on your mind? Well, I've been hearing a lot about um, Trump walking out on Nancy and Chuck the other day. That seems to be the main theme of um, of the talk shows and um I think he did the right thing. I mean, who wants to sit down with people who are out to um, take you down, you know? And, um, I mean, I wouldn't do it. And I applaud him for walking out. You know, it's just it's just ridiculous that um, after two years of being investigated, they're still trying to find a crime, you know? far as I know, you investigate something that's already established, even though it's not proven. And in this case, there's nothing that they can really say he he's done. But they're searching. And to me, you know, that's in itself is un-American. That's, 
to the left who like to use this phrase. Um, that's not who we are. You know, this is not who we are. No, it's not. And it looks like we do have our guest in on the line. Uh, let's welcome to back to the show, Phil McAleer. And he is the man who is known as the conser- conservative provocateur. <laughs> so, <All> right. <laughs> the man that's going to bring the swamp <laughs> to the forefront. Good afternoon, sir. How are you today? Thanks for having me. Good. I thought I was supposed to phone uh, now, but maybe I was supposed to phone 15 minutes ago. Is that correct? No. Uh, well, Hello. we switched it over to quarter of, but you're, can you call back okay. in because okay. your phone is breaking up badly? Yeah, just give a call okay. back in. Yeah, okay, we'll, we'll do. All right. Okay, great, great, great. All right, um, yeah, Phil's going to call in. I mean, that was a bad, bad connection. Oh, yeah. So talk about the swamp. It's like he's <laughs> calling in from under all the water. <laughs> he's out there chasing alligators. Oh, that guy is froggy, man, little rascal. <laughs> That guy. Yeah, let's let's try this once again. <laughs> let's bring him back on. Come on, hello. Here, here we go. Hi, film. How you doing? That, oh, that I'm is good. Can so you hear me now? I thought you were actually. Oh, perfectly. Yeah. yeah, I thought you were in the water with the swamp, you know, over there chasing the alligators and stuff. <laughs> oh man! Hey, listen, you've got a fantastic project that you're going to be putting together. And it's going to be up at the Studio Theater on June uh, June twelfth. Did I have the date right? Did we lose? Did we lose you, Phil? Did we lose him? I think we lost him. Oh, this is going to be one of those days, huh? Yeah. Looks like we lost him. All right. Well. We'll start talking about the film while we're waiting for him to come back on. Uh, but uh, if if I put it up, I can't put www in the in the chat room because it's not going to recognize it. But the website he has is fbilovebirds.com, and it takes you to an Indiegogo um, fundraising thing. What he's doing is he's taking um, the transcripts of all the emails between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and as well as the behind-the-door, the closed-door testimonies, turned it into a play between the two lovebirds. And it's going to be played by Dean Cain, you know, former uh, Superman, as well as Christy Swanson. Um, she was Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And uh, looks like we got him back in again. Let's try this one more time. And I must say, you've got the luck of the Irish film. <laughs> just one of those days today, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I don't know what happened. It just <laughs> dropped out there completely. So hopefully it'll stick this time. <laughs> well, that's because the swamp doesn't want you talking about your, your new project, is it, which is FBI is it Love Mr. Birds. Doris, Mr. Swamp. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you've got an Indiegogo uh, fund, fundraiser going on for this, and you're your goal, I believe, is seventy-five thousand. Uh, and when I looked at it last night, you were almost up to twenty thousand in just a matter yeah. of a couple of days. Uh, yeah, it is. People are going after this gangbusters. They really love the idea of exposing these emails between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page and bringing forward the testimony that was put on behind closed doors, and and bringing it to the public, and then making it uh, the, everyone know what's going on. 
Yeah, yeah, it's amazing the response I've had. Actually, people really want the truth out there. You know, it's uh, I think it's almost up at twenty seven thousand now. People are just donating money all the time, and that's that's great. And we need it too because you know the swamp wants to close this down because you know these are the this is FBI com. This is the FBI Lovebirds. The two senior like Peter Strzok, he headed the so called Clinton investigation into her emails. Then he started the Trump investigation into Russia. And he started it, and he wrote an email to his lover, Lisa Strzok, saying, time to start. You know, she says, he'll never get elected, will he? This is before the election. He goes, no, we'll stop it. And then later on, he wrote, time to open the insurance policy when it looked like Trump was going to get elected. And he started the investigation. So this is, you know, and these, that's only some of the emails. And then Strzok talks about how, how he was in a Walmart in Southern Virginia, and he could smell the Trump supporters. This is what the, this is what the people who were investigating Trump were seeing when they thought no one was listening. So that's why people want this publicly. We're going to have Dean Cain and Christy Swanson re- reading these emails. We're going to have them answering questions from Cong- congressmen based on the exact transcripts from the t- private congressional hearings that no one knows. So we got transcripts. We got the text messages. Now the public need to know it. So we're going to make this do this play in D.C. on one night. We're going to film it and put it online so that everyone can see it. And that's why people are so keen to fund it, so keen to make it happen, because the establishment don't want it to happen, but it has to. It it really does have to be exposed. And the worst part about it is no sooner do you start working on this project that you have already gotten death threats. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Some some guy on Twitter, you know, who's got quite a lot of followers, by the way, said – uh, what do you say? He says we should close the theater door. You know, so it's going to be live in front of a studio audience in, in D.C. in the Meat Theater on the June the 13th. We should close the theater door, close the theater door, and set uh, set a fire uh, and burn them all. You know, I mean, this is a man talking about burning alive actors and an audience just for going to the theater, just for going, just for filming something that they want the world to see. And and you know what? Is Hollywood outraged? Has Hollywood condemned it? No. Nothing. Quiet. Not. They don't want to talk about this. They, 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 they don't care about a, a violence when it's the right people who are chatting with the violence. It's sickening. So people need to say to Hollywood and the mainstream media, you know, the cover-up stops here, cover-up stops now, and, you know, please help us. It's going to be a great show, and it's going to go online, and people are going to know the truth. It's going to go viral, and you can be part of it. Yeah, now... When I was reading the write of some people writing about, you know, you putting this together and who's in it, it's a Trumpian play, and you are a conservative provocateur. You know, what's funny is you and I are the ones that will get banned on Twitter and Facebook and any other social networks because we are you know, pro-Trump. We're conservative. We've got a solid message out there. Yet you have someone that's threatening mass murder, and and this is – they're threatening mass murder, and no one's doing it. Maybe there should be an investigation into this guy. <laughs> Maybe I mean you're right. Like I mean, the idea that this is a Trumpian play or pro-Trump play. So that's you know, this this is a verbatim play, right? That's the great thing about it. So it's only using the exact test messages. It's only using the exact testimony of 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 struck and page before the congressional committee it's only using the exact questions nothing added no commas no paragraphs nothing it's it's what they said and how how when they thought no one was looking and how they their pathetic answers when questioned about it trying to cover it up so 
it can't. Uh, maybe the truth is pro-Trumpian. I mean, maybe that. Maybe that's what they're admitting all along. That Trump speaks the truth, and that the truth is 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 a Trumpian word. You know, because if they think this is pro-Trumpian, then they believe the truth is pro-Trump. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And a matter of fact, I've got a troll that keeps on, you know, assaulting us here in the studio as well as in the chat room. And if he's listening in, um, his IP address, as well as the fact he's actually cloned my phone, is going to be sent over to the FBI and the FEC. I will be filing an official federal complaint, use of telephone and of the Internet to commit a crime such as counterfeiting my phone number is a felony. Thank you. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but this is, this is what the no. left is doing to us. They're trying to find a way to censure us. Yep, that's what they're doing. And, you know, we need to stand up to them and say, this stops now. Oh, absolutely. You know, so and what this deep- troll doesn't realize is I keep the chat. So I, I'll turn it over to Blog Talk Radio, and yeah. they will see yeah. who this person is. Yeah, any donations out there, any donations of anyone out there, very much received, happily received. Would love to see if anyone from the D.C. area could come to the play on the on the 13th of June. But then, of course, it's, we're filming it. It's going to be released live. Uh, you know, it's going to be released online on YouTube and all that, so everyone can see just what was going on in the swamp, just what they were doing to try and shut this 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 down. So that's what we're going to do. It'd be great uh, if people could help. FBILoveBirds.com. So. Uh, looking forward to it. Oh, absolutely. And there is a link on the show page, so as people listen to the podcast later on, they can click on the link and go directly to your page and make a donation. Like I said, you're looking for just $95,000, not a lot. And when, like I said, last night you were nearing 20000 when I last looked at it. I didn't look at it today to see how far you've gotten. Uh, but you're putting the play on on June 13th. And, you know, you, you invite people to show up, and you're going to be offering this online for free, the movie, once you release it, right? That's it. It's going to be free for everyone. Uh, but as people out there, as conservatives know, nothing's free in this world. Everything costs. So, I mean, I'm gonna, if you can fund it, we, we'll put it out free. We'll, we'll Mass marketing will be advertising all over the place. This is going to really, um, really, really annoy the left, which is a great feeling, actually. <laughs> well, you see, I, I have a favorite saying, I have to annoy at least one liberal a day. That's my New Year's resolution for the last five years, and so far I've been succeeding. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, they're so, I mean, they're so intolerant, it's not hard to annoy them. I suppose that's what I was saying there, was let's annoy the intolerant left, you know, because they're mighty easy to annoy. Oh, absolutely, mighty easy to annoy, and... Uh, one of the things I, I was reading when I was reading what was going on with you, uh, you I think this was an interview, or this is, it might have been an interview. Um, you stated that we're going to show mainstream media in Hollywood that they can no longer push the Russian collusion hoax and force them to acknowledge how the deep state D.C. swamp tried to destroy the Trump candidacy and presidency. Um, oh, that's on your crowdfunding page, the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know... It's true. Well, I think it's, it's very true. It's very clear when you read these emails and these text messages that that's what they wanted to do. Uh, and they thought because they were going to be successful, they thought it would never be uncovered. Don't forget, Hillary Clinton was supposed to win this election. They were going to make sure she won it. And nothing, there'd be no investigations. There'd be no deep background. There'd be none, none of this 
in-depth investigation. And, uh, you know, uh, they would have got away with it. But uh, Trump won, and now now they want to cover it up. So let's make sure the cover-up stops now. Uh, hopefully, hopefully. And uh, people finally read and see what they were doing and how rabid they were. You know, um, you also put up videos uh, doing the transcripts of other testimonies uh, that were given uh, uh, when they were doing these investigations, and which they can yeah. find on your YouTube channel. But I, I, at one point in time, I would have sworn it was you that had some of the emails between Trump and Strzok, uh, not Trump, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. I would have sworn it was you, but I went searching for that video last night. I couldn't find it, but I'm, yes. I, I'm dying no, to we see did, you put this together. We did, we did do a smaller version of this uh, a year ago when the first text messages came out, but that was before we got the, the testimony, uh, the transcript of the testimony behind closed doors. So we, we just closed that up now so that people can get the full version of, of, the, of the text messages. So we didn't have all the text messages. And we didn't have their answers to the congressional interrogations. I mean, they were interrogated. They were grilled over several days. They were forced to answer for, for, for their texts. And, boy, it didn't look good. So we, we did it before, but that was only a 20-minute, half-an-hour thing. This is an hour and a half. This is, going, this is the full Monty. This is going to be dramatic, and people are going to realize just what was going on. Well, how many hours do you have of this stuff? Because uh, when you do a play, normally it's condensed into like two hours. How many hours of, of material did you have yeah. to work from? Uh, I think I mean I think they were they were they were interrogated over a couple of days, over several days. Then there's about four to five thousand text messages. So we were working on those, trying to find you know um, we find, and the problem was we had to cut out so much uh, to make it make it manageable. Wow. Absolutely. Absolutely amazing. Well, I wish you a lot of good luck on this. I, I really am excited about seeing it because I did see that one hour thing that you did last year. My husband and I sat down and watched it and our jaws were just dropping with some of the material that you had there. And if yeah. you just took down with the closed door testimony and add this in, it's going to be a huge eye opener. Yeah, yeah, it's, it, it is eye opening. It's jaw dropping. They're so juvenile. It's 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 teen teen love meeting deep state swamp. You know, uh, I mean, and in the middle of it is a very tragic love story too. You know, as well. So it's just it's very very interesting. It's very good. FBILoveBirds.com. People can go there, find out more, maybe donate, and and help help end this cover up and get the truth out there. Absolutely. Well, I wish you and Anne a lot of luck. You do so much great work because you recently released the movie Gosnell, and I'm sure yes. Anne told you that I took it to my Tea Party meeting and we reviewed it. We we um, premiered it in my Tea Party. Um, I turned over mm-hmm. a couple of other churches onto it, and I'm sh- one of them said that they were going to get the DVD for their church to play. And the word has mm-hmm. to get out of there about the great work you do with Frack Nation. Uh, with the climate change hoax, with the uh, the Cosnell movie, and now this FBILoveBirds.com. You you are an amazing gift to our our side. Well, thank you. Thank you. I I try my best, but I need need people's help as well. So uh, any support they can give would be much received. Thank you very much. All right. God bless. And give my love to Anne. All the best. I will. I will. Thank you. All the best. Bye. All right. All right, Bill McAleer, check out the 
uh, FBILoveBirds.com, and also click on the link that takes you to his uh, YouTube channel. He's got some great, great uh, uh, films up there. Meanwhile, bringing on a fellow tea partier, a veteran of the U.S. Army, a friend of mine I've known for a long time, Emery McClendon. How are you doing, Emery? Oh, I'm doing fine. Um, and that's great. Um, veteran of the U.S. Air Force. Oh, what did I say? Army. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> that's right. After World War II, the Army party. <laughs> I get that a lot. And I'm Navy. <laughs> No, it's no oh, big man. deal. Uh, you're also, yeah, no big deal. I you're just also founder of, <laughs> well, thank you for your service. You know that. Uh, you're also founder of Armed, which is a, um, oh, good Lord. I don't have a major brain fart here today. Uh, oh, good Lord. May, uh, I'm going to say mobile. Radio. Radio. Oh, good Lord. Yeah, amateur radio military. Thank you very much. Ham, ham radio, yes, ham radio. Um, yeah, you're a ham radio enthusiast and you formed Armed, which works with veterans. Uh, tell us about that quickly so people can uh, go there and make a donation to you, too. Okay, yeah, it's uh, Amateur Radio Military Appreciation Day, and every year for the past 16 years we've had events uh, here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and we've had other radio clubs join us around the nation to honor and thank and show appreciation to our military uh, active duty people, our reservists, our retirees, and our veterans by actually uh, having events such as hall growth um, uh, programs, uh, just anywhere that we can hold them so that we can gather these veterans there, honor them, show them that we um, thank them for their service, uh, we also have uh, members of uh, first responders there, and um, we set up ham radios and radios, and then we try to contact other uh, ham radio operators and communities around the country so that people can uh, express their thanks and appreciation live and uh, through one-on-one conversations. Uh, many of the veterans set up radios at VA hospitals, um, in their uh, local parks, um, even in their uh, residences at via you know at other places where um, they can bring friends and neighbors over and allow people to come in and say hey we thank you for everything that you've done for us to keep America free and um, it, it, it was it, it's been a great hit over the years and um, here in Fort Wayne uh, we've done it like I said for 16 years and um, uh, the last couple of years we've scaled back on the amateur radio part of it and 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 um, we still have the radios uh, at, at many of the locations and at our location, but we're so busy um, telling stories, doing things that um, help our veterans out, uh, giving them a picnic, uh, trying to find companies that will uh, donate uh, door prizes or, or things to veterans so that we can give them to them at these events that we don't have time in the short time period anymore to actually get on the radios and, and do a lot of talking. But we still carry the name Amateur Radio Military Appreciation Day. Hopefully we'll be able to uh, get this uh, going again like we did in the past where we have radios in multiple locations around the country 
so that we can converse one-on-one and so that the people in the communities um, can uh, converse with um, veterans, not only in the, in, the, in the United States, but in our military bases overseas. And also uh, during our first uh, probably 10 years or so, we had lots of participation from uh, foreign military members also because uh, a lot of those guys are amateur radio operators. They heard us on the air, and they joined in and said, hey, can we be a part of this event also? And we advised them, yes, they can. Uh, we do have a website, which is www.armad.net. We have lost our webmaster, um, so we haven't been able to update uh, the webpage recently, but we're working on ways so that we can uh, re- uh, refresh our webpage and find someone that will take over the duties to uh, continue. Our website was donated to us by a um, um, uh, Internet uh, uh, I don't know what you call it now, whatever you, people who own internet uh, uh, services, but their um, um, protocol is a little too complicated for me to understand, and um, so I don't know how to keep it updated and so forth, but we'll work it out and get things going again. But this it's a great event, and it's a great opportunity for not only military members but families and their kids and, and, and the people in your community to come out and say hello, even if you just have an event that honors them. Uh, feeds them and and um, just let them know that we're there. Absolutely, you do such wonderful work. You work so so hard to it. Um, and I know you. We all appreciate what you do. Uh, you you contacted me because there was an article in the newspaper about your cousin, and your cousin was is a Tuskegee Airman. And something happened to him recently that uh, that that it was really really very upsetting. You still with me, Emery? Yeah, I'm still there. Yeah, it really was about three weeks ago or so, maybe a little longer than that. Now I think it's about three weeks ago. My cousin, who is now 95 years old. And um, was a former Tuskegee Airman who served during World War II. He was one of the original Tuskegee Airmen. Um, he um, had a um, statue that was um, dedicated to his cause sitting outside of a, um, uh, a center in um, Winter Park, Florida. The name of the center is Hannibal Heritage Center. And it's a life-size statue which portrays my cousin, Richard Hall Jr., once again, 95 years old, in his uh, Tuskegee Airman uh, red tail jacket and red tail hat. The statue was vandalized by someone uh, during the night when they returned to the center the following morning. They found out that the statue had been vandalized. Someone punched a hole right in the gut of the statue. And um, so my cousin... Richard Hall was notified uh, by the uh, center and also by the media and the police department who had came out and, and uh, investigated uh, the crime. So I contacted my cousin to find out if everything was okay with him and that, uh, you know, make sure that he wasn't really bothered by this being that he's 95 years old. And we had a, several conversations since then. And uh, he says, yeah, it was troubling 
it was something that was um, very dear to his heart. He just couldn't understand why people would do something like this. But he didn't um, allow this to uh, drag him down into the pits of hell and um, affect him to the point where it would drive him to being uh, upset and sick and so forth. But he's done quite a few um, uh, media uh, interviews about it. And it's come to find out the uh, artist that um, made this particular statue has decided that he would either repair it or make a brand new statue to replace that one. So there is some good that's coming out of this, even though that it's, it's an act of violence and, and uh, especially against uh, an older gentleman like this who, I mean, you know, the question needs to be asked, why would somebody do something against a, a person that's this involved in history of the United States of America and that was out there fighting for the rights uh, of every individual? You know, if you if anyone were to know the story about the Tuskegee Airmen, it is a, a story about brave men that had an uphill battle. You know, the the military at that point in time was segregated. That for some reason they didn't think a black person could fly a plane. Uh, and these men that were being um, uh, I'm sorry, I mean, my brain is like having major parts to These men that were struggling because they were born black in America. And here they are now trying to defend that America. They want to go out there. They want to fight on the side of liberty, but they're kept segregated. And even the troops that they were protecting, they were trying to protect, were not favorable to them. That's absolutely correct. And if I might, I'll, I'll just read a short paragraph that's uh, on their website that talks about uh, the Tuskegee Airmen, and then we'll comment on some of the things that my cousin told me about as far as racism and then also uh, some of the things that um, you can read about in the history of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen and also in uh, the several movies that have come out about the Tuskegee Airmen. Uh, one called Red Tails, and the other one just the Tuskegee Airmen. And there's also many, many documentaries and um, interviews and um, just uh, information out there about the Tuskegee Airmen. And as you were saying, these were men who, in the words of my cousin, said, we just wanted to do something to help. We wanted to do something to serve our country, and we wanted to be a part of uh, helping America during World War II, and they volunteered, and they gave up um, a lot of them college. They gave up uh, their families to do so, but as we know, the Tuskegee Airmen was a name given to members of the United States uh, Army Air Force units in World War II that were comprised primarily of African-American flyers and maintenance crews, um, though a few white officers and trainers were also involved. The group compiled an impressive uh, military record, primarily in the Mediterranean theater of operations, despite facing frequent, as you stated, uh, resistance to their presence in the former, formerly all-white Army Air Corps. And this is one of the things that makes them uh, stand out as unique because they didn't give up. They didn't um, uh, just say, hey, because we can't get in, we're not going to do so. But we had men that came from all over the United States. Many of them were crop dusters. They were uh, men who had built their own airplanes, men who were flying all around the country. 
and they were involved in uh, air shows and so forth, but they couldn't uh, fly with their counterparts in the military nor in the civilian world because of racism. So they became known as the uh, Tuskegee Airmen or the Red Tails, which that, that name, Red Tails, came from the distinctive color red that they used on their tail fans on the airplanes, and they became known as, as the Red Tails. But uh, they were fighter pilots, and they basically were part of the 332nd Pursuit Group, which was broken down into four units, the 99th, the 100th, the 301st, and the 302nd uh, fighter squadrons. And then um, they, they also were in the 477th Bombardment Group um, after uh, World War II, and it was part of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen's Pilot, Navigators, Bombers, Maintenance, and Support Staff and Instructions. Now, having said all of that, um, during our um, ARMAD Amateur Radio Military Appreciation Day um, presentation that we had on last Sunday, we had a gentleman there that was an old-time military guy. And one of the things that he reminded me of, which I had forgotten to tell our audience, was that even though the Tuskegee Airmen was an all-black unit, they didn't have one black commanding officer. All of the officers were, were white. And, um, and, I, you know, and I said, yeah, that was really unique about that because they didn't want them to succeed. They did everything that they uh, tried to do to make them fail. Their standards were set higher. Their washout rate was expected to be higher, but almost every single black pilot that applied passed the courses with flying colors. Yeah, it's an amazing, amazing story. And I had uh, emailed you the message that I had received a book in the mail to review uh, about the Tuskegee Airmen and um, Soaring to Glory by Philip Handelman. And it tells the story of Lieutenant Colonel Harry T. Stewart Jr. And he's going to the Lieutenant Colonel is going to be our guest uh, next month, I believe June 14th. I forget which this be, be next month. That book is being released in about a week and a half. So I've got a pre-press copy. And when I started reading it, and you were telling me the story about what happened to your cousin, I, I'm I was blown away that it came in the same day you sent me that email. And I said, the good Lord isn't working. I don't know who is then. Wow, that's amazing. And, uh, yeah, any story that you can get and read about them is just so remarkable. And even the historical accounts, which most of them were uh, uh, hidden because they didn't want to, um, um, I guess what you might call, blow up the successes or, or, or let the public know about the successes of the, of the Tuskegee Airmen. But many, many researchers and historians went out and uncovered the facts and uncovered a lot about these men, and that's how we get the stories and the movies and the documentaries. And also, um, as they gathered uh, for reunions all around the country, and my cousin has been to several of those, well, many of those reunions where they got together, and um, we don't uh, find them um being able to uh, be as uh, united anymore in reunions because many of them are older and then most of them are now gone and they're no longer with us. But those that are, are uh, speaking freely about what happened now because uh, they played a very important role, not only in the segregation and um, uh, the racial aspects of bringing the military together uh, racially, but it also played a part in our civil rights movement here in the United States of America in the civilian world. 
uh, in the uh, commercial pilot industry and also in, in the, during the civil rights movement uh, of Martin Luther King and so forth. Uh, the Tuskegee Airmen shed a lot of light upon that, and it brought um, uh, our units together and was able to, um, to bring our pilots uh, in unison with many of the white pilots in the United States Air Force when it was formed separate from the uh, Army Air Corps. So yeah, uh, being able to read a copy of that pre-release book is, is an honor. And then just learning about the history of, of these men who sacrificed uh, uh, some of the things that they did. There's just so many stories. And I didn't know just my cousin, but I also got to know uh, several other um, Tuskegee Airmen, and, and many of those that I know or knew are dead now. But they told some very interesting stories, um, and, and it's really interesting how I met them. I met them through amateur radio with, or ham radio um, through the years, but I didn't really pay that much um, significance to it. I just listened to their stories and learned about them. And then finally when they began to die off, and I had attended several of the uh, um, forums and presentations that some of them uh, um, were called to uh, serve at and to tell the people about the history, uh, especially from uh, – uh, we had a event here in Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they brought in one of the oldest ones. He's now deceased. He was from Ohio, from Cincinnati, uh, Cincinnati Dayton, Ohio area. Um, I had a chance to meet with him and interview him and talk to him and share a program with him, and um, uh, it was really uh, quite an interesting thing. But many of those guys, like I said, were ham radio operators because they were used to communications uh, in their airplanes. So therefore, it, it was, it was um, some of the uh, black ham radio groups um, had many of them as members. So I was able to talk to them and, and, and learn a lot about them firsthand. Now, it is a very interesting story. And what I found really funny, because it was 996 African-American pilots were in the Tuskegee. And 15,000 ground personnel. Now, your cousin doubled as a P-51 Mustang a pilot as well as ground crew. So he's full double duty. Do you have a speaker or something on in the back? Because I hear myself coming back at me. Uh, no, I don't. It's just uh, I have you on a, on a, on a speakerphone, but I, didn't, I don't have a speaker on in the back. I, I moved the phone. So how is that now? Oh, a lot better. Oh, definitely a lot better. Hemorrhage. <laughs> Oh, this right, is my co-host, Curtis. You mentioned but anyway, that you can you hear me? Yeah, go ahead. You mentioned earlier. You mentioned earlier that um, you wonder what type of person could vandalize your cousin's statue, and honestly, I can't say who did it, but you have to wonder if. Um, you know, citizens of the United States who were brought up in the, you know, blame America first, um, you know, school system, any of that had a play in this. You know, <clears throat> the more I look at our youth today, the more I see a less patriotic, you know, citizenry. Um, most of them refuse to say the Pledge of Allegiance. A lot of them refuse to, um, you know, cross their heart. Um, it's just sad, you know, and now they're going after statues, you know, as a, a symbol of uh, oppression and things like that. I mean, 
soldiers from uh, the Vietnam War were called baby killers and things. I don't know what they would associate your cousin, you know, as a statue, you know, and war. But uh, whatever it was, what they did was not honorable or patriotic. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly, and I pondered over that and talked to my cousin about that. And also, um, I've followed some of the vandalism and some of the, the requests that have been made by this new society that we live in today to destroy our history. I'm glad you brought that up because I had thought about that when Ann asked me to come on the program. And um, it, it's really amazing how uh, these colleges, uh, high schools, and just dissidents in general want to remove the history uh, that we have that so richly defines this country and so richly defines some of the individuals that struggled so hard to make this country what it is. It's really amazing because if you don't have history, you don't know where you came from, you don't know where you're going to go. And uh, that was one of the things that my cousin talked about. He said he just couldn't understand, you know, what it is about someone who saved us from the clutches of a person like uh, Hitler and, and Nazi Germany and also um, looking back over uh, the uh, World War II, the Korean War, he mentioned, and, and the Vietnam War. And by the way, my cousin, Richard Hall uh, Jr., he served on, uh, in four, uh, on four continents, and he served in, um, let's see, he served in the World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. So he served in three world wars over a stretch of a 30-year career in the uh, United States military. And during um, some of his time, he spent in South America uh, training foreign pilots on maintenance and care as an engineer. And like Ann said, he spent double duty not only as a pilot, but also as an engineer and a person who knew those planes almost like the back of his hand. So he trained a lot of pilots and engineers and uh, maintenance people on how to care for uh, the P-51s and also other aircraft. And um, he was very proud of that. He mentioned that quite a bit. And one of the things that I wanted to say also is that even though my cousin is 95 years of age, he'll be 96, mind you, in September of 2019, I met with him in person um, in uh, back in June of last year, and we sat down and we talked. And we spent uh, some time together. And we also, like I said, talk on the phone uh, as often as we can. His mind and his recollect is almost like that of a a 25 or 30-year-old person. He can remember uh, a specific account. He can go back and tell you, you know, from his boyhood all the way up until now, uh, without even batting an eye or, or, or stuttering about things, events that happened and about things that he sees that is going on in the world even today. And it really amazed me because uh, he's so sharp and he's so uh, astute um, in his mind at 95 years of age. So, uh, But, yeah, getting back to your question, it's really amazing how people have changed over the years and how they don't respect our history, how they don't respect our tradition. And it's really disturbing because as we begin to see this direction uh, you know, our youth turning to turning in this direction in our country, we see that many polls, I think I just read a poll not too long ago that says that 69% of most Democrats, uh, progressive Democrats, 
uh, believe in socialism and that it is the way to go in this country simply because a lot of them don't know about our history or don't care about our history. And, and that's sad. And we know, notice that since this last Congress has come into play with all of the progressive socialists that have been elected, they're very vocal. And they're speaking about taking this country in that direction without even really knowing anything about what socialism is about or knowing the effects of socialism and even communism uh, throughout the world. A system that has never worked anywhere it's been tried, but yet they want to implement it here in the United States of America. You know, your cousin's story is so amazing, but if you look at American history in so many areas, it's so exceptional, and to tear it apart because they simply don't understand. They're being brainwashed in our public school system. And I, I keep, of course, article after article that I pulled aside uh, where they have no concept of our history, of what our republic stands for, and the difference between our capitalistic republican society compared to a socialistic and communistic society. They, they do not comprehend why one is so far superior to the other. You're right. And so they attempt to rename it to progressive socialism, and they say that because America is such a rich country, that we can buy our way out and through socialism to make it work. And that simply is not true. And one typical example of that, a modern example of that, would be Venezuela, which was a very rich country, uh, rich in oil uh, proceeds and so forth. And look at the situation which they're under today. A rich nation who tried to implement um, this so-called system, and now we have people that can't get toilet paper, they can't get food, uh, they're throwing their money away in the streets. People are finding gobs and gobs of money just out on the, in the streets. It's like it's nothing except waste. So we have a lot of work to do, you know, here in America as far as re-educate, trying to re-educate our kids and bring them back around. But the system is working against us, as you said, because our educators don't believe in America, and they have taken over our education system, and they're brainwashing our kids and teaching our kids that – it's not okay to be a citizen of America, to be proud of America, but you should be citizens of the world and be willing to consider yourself as citizens of the world and, and, and um, just um, drop the history of our military uh, accomplishments, our founding fathers' accomplishments, anything that goes along with that. And my cousin mentioned that. I think I talked to him, I think it was um, last Friday on the phone the last time I talked to him, he mentioned that. He said it really bothers him how that through all the thousands of, of people that died um, on D-Day and on, on Normandy and Korea and in Vietnam and all the time that we spent uh, trying to um, make things better and better in America and then even having a president such as we have right now that wants to keep America great and make America great, uh, there's so much infighting and, and, and um, resistance to what's going on, even though we can see the results of his policies that are making the country better, people still want to fight it and bring our country down and, and take us to a, a level of failure, and, and that's very disturbing. And um, my cousin, you know, he spoke about that, and he said, that, you know, it really bothers him, and, 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 and it bothers me also because – we need to protect the future of this country. We need to make sure that we continue to live 
free and freedom and liberty uh, in this country. Otherwise, we will go down in the ash heaps of history. Now, it is it is a shame, and a lot of it is perpetrated by mainstream media in Hollywood. You know, they're not putting the news stories out there about what's going on in Venezuela. They're not putting any of these stories out there. And everyone thinks everything is just hunky-dory. You know, we've got a border that is so porous, a sieve has, could maintain more water than that border can. And yet, mainstream media, there's no crisis. There's no crisis over here. No, we just had millions of illegal aliens crossing into our country, using our services for free, getting free housing, free medical care, free food, uh, free education, everything they're getting for free at the cost of the taxpayer. We're already falling into a socialistic system by doing this. And how can we have a country without having borders? That's absolutely correct. And um, this is, 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 a, is a problem that even in the minds of some of the um, um, black um, people that are involved in the Red Tails and, and, and uh, uh, the Tuskegee Airmen and other people that I talk to uh, ponder about, you know, sometimes they wonder if they're on the wrong side, but yet they're still on that side. But um, a lot of them say that, um, you know, it was very special, and it, and it was very special what these people did to uh, continue to make our uh, liberty and our freedom to continue in this country and um it, it's really amazing and um i just don't know what the solution is i think part of the solution is we just need to to uh, speak uh, good of this country speak good of the history of our country speak good about uh, capitalism capitalism and the republic in which we live in and try to get our young people to understand that through um, um our families and through our uh, churches and through bringing it back into schools, we need to try to um, use our resources to get our schools to once again teach uh, geography and history and, and, and uh, to teach civics uh, among our kids so that they can once again return to the pride um, that we once held uh, from the founders until, uh, uh, I don't know when, when this all started, but it's been going on for a long time. And we need to renew that spirit of America and bring things back around. Otherwise, um, we're going to find ourselves falling deeper and deeper into this. Like you said, we're already in some of the clutches of what's going on. But um, that's why it's so important on Memorial Day and and other um, uh, military holidays to tell the stories, to tell people why it's important that we honor and that we support these people and to continue to uh, teach our history and to continue to teach what freedom and what liberty means. And by focusing on people such as this, this is why I've, I've uh, created uh, Amateur Ready Military Appreciation Day. And this is why I, I speak a lot and go around the country talking about our military and talking about why we should thank them and so forth is because this is one of the areas I think that we can use to make young people uh, renew their interest in this country. You know, your, your cousin has such a, a wonderful story, and we're losing every single day more and more veterans from World War II and now the Korean War, Vietnam War. And these stories do have to get out. Now, your cousin was so unique because here he was, he was an enlisted man. He was a chief master sergeant. Uh, normally you think of a pilot and you think of an officer. And here he's pulling double duty through three different wars. 
I mean, if someone were to follow him around with the tape recorder, he is a walking book. He is he's another person that his history put down in writing and being given to these kids to read today to let them understand what he went through and what he achieved in his life with such odds against him. You know, we need yeah. to get these stories out there. Yeah, you're absolutely right because uh, when you talk to him, he's talked about some of the places that he's gone to schools and he's done many, many interviews. As a matter of fact, <laughs> um, a few times when I've called him, the news media was either there or, or leaving or or documenting some more of his stories, taking pictures of, of a lot of the uh, awards and, 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 and uh, medals and so forth that he had earned throughout the years. And I have pictures of a lot of that. Um, I sat down and took pictures of most of his medals, his awards, his his letters of commendation, his um, Purple Heart, his um, uh, Congressional Medal of Honor, and so forth that he received from Congress and from the President um, Bush. And um, it's really amazing. You could spend hours and hours and hours. Uh, he has a uh, when he goes out and speaks, he has a table that he sets up. And you can hardly make it through some of his albums and his letters of accommodation, his his information and some of his personal stories that have been transformed. You can hardly make it through any of that stuff uh, in the time frame that these events take place. And it's really wonderful. And I hope that um, uh, before he dies that they will put these things in a special place after um, right now they're they're in his home and he um, he has displays and he lets people come in and out and so forth and he takes a lot of of these um, artifacts uh, on the road with him when he goes he has a caregiver that uh, that uh, basically takes care of him and and and, and uh, uh, travels with him around the country and uh, it's just amazing just the, the, the number of, of of artifacts and things that he's collected over the years and uh, one of the things that he talks about and you mentioned it earlier too that he pulled double duty was that he remembers very vividly the day when he first received his his uh, call to the military he was a student at Xavier University down in uh, Louisiana and he wanted so dearly to finish his um, college uh, experience so that he could become an officer and um, and and do flying and flying only but so what he did was he joined the uh, reserves to um, continue his education, but that didn't last very long. <laughs> he received a letter uh, shortly thereafter, which actually was going to send him straight to boot camp and then into uh, a, a, a combat-related uh, position. So he somehow or another um, pleaded with them, and he got put into the Tuskegee Airmen a group because of all of his knowledge and experience of flight and, and um, of airplanes and so forth. So he was able to, to do what he did. He was only 18 years old and it was back in uh, 1942. So he talks about that a lot. And that's very, very, very um, uh, amazing that um, he, he would have a chance to do that as an enlisted man to pull double duty. No, the time period that he grew up with and what he was able to achieve is amazing. Because when I'm reading this other book uh, about uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, Stewart, the odds they had to overcome, and you know, blacks were not thought to be pilots. And that in pre-World War II, there was happened to be also one woman who found that she loved the thought of flying so much. 
tried to get someone to teach her. She was African-American, and no one would teach her how to fly. She was told, you want to learn how to fly, go to France, they'll teach you, then come back here with your license. And once she did that, she did come back. She ended up, she couldn't get a job anywhere. No one would hire her as a pilot, so she became a stunt pilot. And she would perform. She would go around and perform all across the country. That was the only way she got to fly. The odds that they had to overcome were phenomenal. And then once in the military, the additional raises that went on, as you said, with superior officers, they would smile at you during the day and at night behind your back. They're writing poor fit rep report. You know, they would be stabbed in the back. And this is the odds they had to overcome. Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you brought up um, her, and I'm glad that you mentioned that because uh, I did some more research, and I um, at the um, program that we had on last Sunday, I did a short presentation on three women who were very, very crucial to the formation of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen and was able to make sure that uh, they became uh, into existence, and Two of those women were African-Americans or blacks, and the third woman was, of course, Eleanor Roosevelt. I mean, yeah, and um, uh, the wife of uh, FDR, the president of the United States, former president of the United States. And if I could, I'll just read something very uh, short from that. Um, The first woman is Mary McLeod Bethune. Um, She um, was a famed educator and head of the National Council of Negro Women, and she used her authority as the only female member of President Franklin Delano Roosevelt's black cabinet and her close friendship to First Lady Eleanor to lobby against segregation and for integrating the pilot program, the key of which was to get the government to open training programs on the campuses of historically uh, black colleges and universities. So because of her efforts, Uh, West Virginia State College became the first black school to adopt an aviation program and receive its military airplane in 1939. And then that precedent uh, led up to Tuskegee Airmen, the Tuskegee Institute, uh, which was authorized the same uh, uh, program later that year. And then the second uh, uh, woman was, uh, her name was uh, Patrice Brown. And she was a businesswoman with a love for for, uh, aviation. She promoted the image of black uh, aviators, hoping to fight prejudice and increase opportunities for African-Americans. Brown convinced black newspapers to cover air shows and other aspects of black aviation, which we mentioned before, this was some of the only things that they could do. So she helped organize the Chicago National Airmen's Association of America. She lobbied for federal funds to support Chicago's private Coffee School of Aviation, and wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt about integrating America's aviation forces. And without her work, African-American interests in aviation may have floundered. So these women were very important into um, uh, forming the and keeping the uh, dream of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen alive. And I'll, I'll get into uh, Eleanor Roosevelt a little bit about what she did, but I want to open this up for comments for you. Well, it's funny because you mentioned Chicago uh Air Club, and that was pivotal in helping form the Tuskegee. There were two pilots that came out of there. They built their own plane, and they were taking it from Chicago across the United States and ending up in Washington, D.C. at the heart. And they were going to lobby the Senate and Congress 
to get blacks into the military to fly. And it almost didn't happen except the person that was taking them around D.C. to meet everyone walked in and introduced them to then-Senator Harry Truman. So Truman was also pivotal in helping to bring the Tuskegee Airmen into existence and then later on to integrate the military. Yeah, you're right. He worked an executive order. It started with the number 9,000. I forgot what the number was, 90-something. Um, 9,900-something is the executive order, which actually finally integrated and um, expanded upon um, FDR and what he had done uh, because of his wife. And um, one of the things I wanted to mention about uh, Eleanor Roosevelt was that um, uh, she convinced uh, the Rosewall Fund to expand the, the pilot training program at Tuskegee uh, early in the year. Roosevelt visited the Tuskegee Institutes. Uh, it was called Moton Field. It was named after uh, a president of uh, Tuskegee uh, Institute. And she asked the chief flight instructor, which, who was uh, Charles Anderson. And uh, some of the other Tuskegee Airmen that I talked to talked about Charles Anderson quite a bit. He was quite a guy. One of the guys that I knew uh, over the years through ham radio, his name was John Pullman, and you probably read some stuff about him. He was on the ground crews of the uh, Tuskegee Airmen, and um, he died I think he was 97 or 98 years old, but this was back about um, probably about 10 years ago. Um, he talked a lot about some of the things that happened. Uh, he talked a lot about how they couldn't get into the officers' clubs, how they would be on base, and, and they would be accused of things and that they didn't do, and that whenever they were to have briefings uh, for their bombing missions or and even classes that they went through at, at Tuskegee, the other airmen would give them the wrong times, so that to, to make them late, uh, so that only happened once, and they they all wised up and they began to help each other, and they um, uh, made sure that they got to class early rather than late. So anyway, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, she wanted to go on a flight with one of the uh, black Tuskegee Airmen, and Charles Anderson ended up being the one that took her on a flight. Of course, the Secret Service and others were deeply um, against it. Many people told her that if she went up. She'd probably crash or whatever because black people didn't know how to fly. But she went up with him, and she flew for an hour uh, flying over to Tuskegee Airfield. And um, it was probably uh, the first time that a black man had ever flown a plane with a white person as a passenger, especially as a white woman. But after her return to Washington, D.C., she was so impressed with this pilot that she lobbied her husband for integration of the company of the country's um, aviation forces, and um, it was really amazing because uh, without that, it probably would not have come to pass. So we also learned that um, while change was slow, by the end of 1944, there were um, 700,000 um, African Americans in the Army because of what the Tuskegee Airmen did, 165,000 in the Navy, 5,000 in the Coast Guard, and 17,000 in the Marine Corps simply because they opened up the uh, avenues for uh, blacks uh, to be involved um, in military operations. And one of the things I wanted to bring up, too, was uh, some of the things that the uh, uh, the airmen did. And my cousin talked about that, and it was the, uh, the different awards and the different um, uh, medals and so forth. 
and I think now his his numbers matched <clears throat> very well with um, uh, what um, is written down in history. And I'll write it down because I took some notes here, and then I compared it to what I found in Wikipedia and other places. He said that there were more. There were um, um, there were fifth or fifteen. It was over fifteen thousand. It was fifteen thousand eight hundred or nine hundred and some odd uh, combat airmen assigned to the. Uh, um, um, Tuskegee Airmen, and there was 996 pilots, and sometimes he, he would round it off to 1,000. And he said that um, they flew 15,000 combat sorties. Um, they destroyed 111 German airplanes, and uh, they even destroyed a, uh, a ship, uh, a destroyer, and it had to limp back to, uh, to uh, its harbor, and, it was, and they put it out of... Uh, out of service for the rest of World War II. He said that they also um, had uh, destroyed um, about 150 aircraft on the ground and possibly up to as high as 950 rail cars and vehicles destroyed. He said there were 66 pilots that were killed in action and 32 of them were downed and captured. And that um, they were, in all of their efforts, they were awarded over 740 medals, 150 distinguished flying crosses, 14 bronze stars, and eight purple hearts. Now, it's an amazing, amazing story. And because, you know, I, I do love you know, telling these types of stories there, I do know that um, there were certain people in the Luftwaffe that if they knew that an American pilot was had been captured, they'd end up being sent uh, to concentration camps instead of the prisoner war camps. They would go and retrieve them and help protect them. And if blacks were captured, you know, they were in for a hellacious time. A lot of times they never even made it to the prison war camp. But the German Luftwaffe officers had a code of honor that they would go deliberately and rescue these black soldiers and the pilots and protect them from, you know, being murdered. So it's a lot of history that is not being told that it has got to get out there. And I'm glad stories like your cousins are now getting out there. And it's unfortunate because of the statue being uh, damaged, but it is getting out there. Yes, and I can attest personally to what you just said about the concentration camps and prisoner war camps. My father also served in World War II. He served in the Europe, and um, he um, actually was captured and was in a prisoner of war. For and he, he never really told us how long it was, but it sounds like a pretty um, uh, good little stint. Um, he was rescued, and he didn't say whether it was by those Germans or whether he escaped on his own or whatever, but him and several guys escaped, and they were able over a, a period of, of several weeks or so to make it back uh, to friendly lines and be rescued. So I know exactly what you're talking about. And my father was also... Um, um, he received the uh, Purple Heart. Um, he was injured uh, quite severely uh, in his leg. And when he died, he still had the shrapnel in his leg. And uh, unfortunately, my father died at age 57. And, um, but he, and he never would really talk a lot about his military service. But he also served in World War II and in, um, in the Korean War. So I can attest to what you just said uh, from a personal standpoint. And I followed in my father's footsteps. I wanted to be in the military also, but I didn't join the Army. I joined the Air Force because most of my cousins and my uh, neighbors were Air Force people, 
and uh, my brother-in-law and um, I, you know, other people that I knew, many of them were in the Air Force. So I had more knowledge about the Air Force and also, you know, following in the footsteps of my cousin, uh, Robert, I joined the Air Force for four years in the regular Air Force. And then I came out, I was out for about uh, three to four months and I joined the Indiana Air Guard and served two more years. And during that stint, I was also deployed uh, during the uh, six-day Israeli war. I didn't go to Israel, but we went to uh, England, and I spent um, a little over a month at um, uh, Lakenheath Air Base in England to replace those guys who were sent to uh, the Middle East uh, during the Six-Day War. Emery. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes. I really believe Americans um, are looking for superheroes. And my pet peeve with Hollywood is the fact that um, they focus on fictitious superheroes. And and I like Batman. I like Spider-Man, Iron Man, and the Hulk. But the United States has a treasure chest of um, war heroes. And it would be nice if they would, you know, feature one of them. In the blockbuster, you know, movie, I'm sure Americans would, would go to see, you know, a movie about one of our our war heroes, and they just don't seem to, you know, want to take a chance to do that. You know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I, you hear a lot of talk in the black community and also among uh, young people in general that and older people alike, and especially with me being a part of the uh, the conservative Tea Party movement and, and, and in conservatism in general and traveling around the country, this gets brought up quite a bit, and especially when people find out um, that I'm involved in military appreciation events and they find out about some of the military history um, that um, I have under my belt as well as under my relative's belt. We have quite a, quite a, quite a history. We have... Um, on my father's side and his um, brothers, his cousins, and, and, and distant, not distant and close relatives all served in the military. And then also on my mother's side, um, her brothers and um, relatives served in the military. And you're absolutely right. Um, we, we, we build up these fake uh, characters and, and we look upon them and, and Hollywood tries to bring them out as heroes. And, and they make people believe that these are real live action uh, adventures, but they're not. And what we need to do is bring to life real heroes, as you said, those who serve in the military, our police officers, our firemen, our first responders, and so forth. These people have real life stories to tell, and they dedicate themselves and their lives to doing everything that they can to preserve everything that America stands for and to make sure that not only their families, their relatives, but their friends, their neighbors, and their communities are able to continue to enjoy uh, the American dream. And you're absolutely right. We need to put more emphasis upon these people, uh, but we don't. And um, uh, they won't fund these movies. They won't uh, 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 make movies. I always used to tell my wife and also my brothers and sisters, even when I was growing up, I said, just as good as Hollywood can make a movie about horror, about fake uh, uh, heroes, they could spend their time and effort 
to make good, wholesome movies about people whose lives have changed the course of this nation and brought better things to each and every one of us as Americans. That's true. Well, there's one thing I noticed that um, after World War II, there's people that came back and came to work in Hollywood, and they were real-life heroes, the Audie Murphys. And you'd be surprised how many actors had served during World War II that we, we never knew about. They came back quietly and just slipped back into America's fabric. You, you don't hear about someone like my father. He returned from Germany. Uh, he was part of the occupation troops there. And he very rarely spoke anything about it. It wasn't until just a few years before he died, he put together a photo album, sat down with me, and we talked about it. But thankfully, he did do that. But how many brave men and women came back and just slipped back into everyday life? And you never know the backstory. Yeah, you're absolutely right, because they didn't consider themselves as heroes. My cousin constantly says, and my father, he said the same thing. All we wanted to do was to do a service for our country. All we wanted to do was, was help. And he said that over and over and over. They didn't consider themselves as heroes. They considered themselves as average American citizens who answered a call. And so, therefore, they never bragged about it. They never talked about it. And now I think you see more of them speaking up. Uh, every year at our RMAD event here in Fort Wayne, we've had a uh, gentleman. He is 97 years of age. He came, comes to our event. He says he'll come every year until he uh, dies as long as he can make it. Well, he didn't make it this year because uh, rumor has that he has a real severe case of cancer. And he may have, e- may have even died because I can't get a hold of him or his family. But the thing that he always said, and he was one of the original ones that hit the beach of Normandy, during D-Day, and he said he watched people fall all around him, but yet he was still alive, and he made it up on the beach, and um, he was able to make it into a bunker and, and, and uh, uh, survive uh, World War II and come back home. And so every year um, he, comes, he came to our event at RMAD, and he would tell us stories. And the thing, he was a very strong individual also. He, um, he was still driving a car at age 95. <laughs> he drove himself. To our events, so, but he never told mm-hmm. stories about it or or, or made um, himself a hero off the record. He would only mention these things if we had him up as a speaker at our event. So, but recently, the reason why a lot of people are starting to come out, and especially some of the older ones such as my cousin, is because they see what's happening to America and they want, within all their hearts to make America great again, just like our president, and to be sure that their relatives and people like us are able to continue to enjoy uh, the American dream. So they have a heartfelt desire now, but it's a little late uh, for them to go out and make action movies, but at least they're telling their stories. Yeah, it's a huge amen. God bless your cousin for you know putting his story out there. Because he's been doing, as you said, interview after interview after interview. He'll be turning 96, but still kicking strong. You gotta love these guys. You gotta love them. Yes, and I appreciate uh, groups like the honor flights that are kept, you know happening all over this country, where they're taking these people um, to see the different memorials in Washington D.C. 
a lot of these guys didn't even know these uh, memorials existed. I wish my father could have lived long enough for me to take him uh, to uh, see the Korean Memorial and the World War II Memorial, and uh, it would have probably really blessed him to know that they are being honored and that uh, people do appreciate it on a national level as to what they do. And maybe it would have helped to open him up and to get him to tell more of his stories. But um, it wasn't until after he died that I even learned that he had received a Purple Heart, and that was from my younger brother uh, telling me some of the stories. And the reason why my younger brother found out so much information is that he stayed home and he went to college, and my father would uh, come down and take him back and forth between college at Indiana University and also come and see him fight in some of his um, judo uh, matches throughout the state of Indiana. And they would sit down and talk. So he began to ask my father questions about his military experience. He opened up. So then my brother told me some of the stories. So it, it, it's a very difficult thing, but it's something that we must um, continue to carry on the traditions of what these people did for us and are doing for us. And I'm hoping that uh, by having events such as Amateur Radio Military Appreciation Day and by sharing these events on our uh, holidays, especially Memorial Day, which honors those who've given all, those who've given their lives uh, through Veterans Day and through some of our other holidays, Armed Forces Day and so forth, we can renew the spirit within the heart and mind of our, our young people. Well, Emery, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. And, you know, next time you head down here, you've got to make sure you give me a call. We'll have a cocktail together. I just want to leave with one passing thought um, because your your cousin was present at the presentation of um, a brand-new song based upon the Tuskegee Airmen called The Red Tail Skirmish. And it was played for the first time for him and and – Two other, two other Tuskegee Airmen and a, a female uh, Airman uh, for the first time, and they were presented with the scores of the music. Uh, I believe that was in 2012. So there is now, there is a song dedicated to the Tuskegee Airmen called Red Tail Skirmish. I'm going to play that at the end of the show as our closing because uh, I don't want to hold you up. I see I got our next victim up in the batter's box. But, Emery, thank you. People can find you at armed.net. Yeah, they can find me there on Facebook and on Twitter. On Twitter, I'm KB9IBW uh, on Twitter, and then just use my name on Facebook. And I publish a lot of stuff about the military and, and how we should be thankful and appreciated uh, of our military forces. And um, I just want to tell everybody to continue to tell your youth, to continue to tell one another, and to uplift one another. And let's do all that we can to preserve liberty and freedom in this great United States of America. Well, God bless the hard work you do, Emory, and I'll be speaking with you. Take care. Yes, God bless you, and we will do that when we come back down. All right. All right. All right. Let me get myself organized here. So check out Emory McClendon at armet.net, also up on Twitter, as well as up on Facebook. We got our next guest in on the line as I try to get everything here organized. And we have with us William Highland, author of a great book called George Mason, The Founding Father Who Gave Us the Bill of Rights. Good afternoon, Mr. Highland. How are you today? Good afternoon. I'm great. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm just sorry we missed you last week. I was all set, but you know what happened? You saved me a couple of extra hours of doing my notes last night because I already had everything put aside. <laughs> Got it. Thank you. And as my co-host... As my co-host can see, uh, he's looking at the book with all these little tabs on it because I use Post-it notes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a great book. Uh, when you think about the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence, you think Thomas Jefferson, James Madison. You very rarely would James uh, George Mason come to mind. He's he's the founding father that everyone seems to forget. He is, um, and that's why I really wrote the book. Um, I don't think he's been given due credit in history. You know, he came up with some of the most famous words um, in our political history. He actually wrote uh, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness a month before Jefferson wrote his Declaration of Independence. And, in fact, Jefferson uh, borrowed heavily from George Mason's original Virginia Declaration of Rights to write his famous Declaration of Independence. Um, so Mason really doesn't get credit for the credit that he's due. Um, his Virginia Declaration of Rights that was written in May of 1776 was really the blueprint also for the first Ten Amendment of the Constitution, which became our Bill of Rights. Those were George Mason's words freedom of the press, freedom of expression, freedom of religion. George Mason actually wrote those rights, and they eventually became the Bill of Rights 12 years later um, after the Constitutional Convention. Yeah, it's, it's an excellent book. And the way you tell the story, you put the facts out there, but then you put the person in with the facts. You actually personalize it, and you tell it as a story rather than as dry historical facts. Well, you know, he was a very interesting man. Um, unlike kind of Jefferson and Madison, he was not a, a public man. He preferred to stay home with his family, his books, and his farm. So he was very cloistered um, at his mansion in Gunston Hall. And in fact, he had to be talked into going to the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia and that was the first time he had ever been out of the state of Virginia. So he was not really a public man, and that's why I think history has kind of consigned him to the second tier of importance. But given his political writings, he really should be in the same conversation uh, with Washington, Jefferson, and Madison. Absolutely, and his next-door neighbor happened to have been George Washington. And they were, at one point, very good friends. But there was a stark difference between the two of them, physically and intellectually. Yes, they were uh, very good friends, and they were neighbors, but they had a very bitter falling out at the Constitutional Convention, sort of like Jefferson and Adams had a political falling out. Mason and George Washington uh, ended their friendship basically at the Constitutional Convention. Um, Mason refused to sign the Constitution, and Washington took that as kind of personal disloyalty. But one of the reasons he we're gonna, did we're not gonna get to, sign – sure. Well, I was going to get to that a little bit later on. I, I want to work into it so people can understand what the book is about because – 
at the time, we were formed underneath an article, Articles of uh, Confederation. You know, we reviewed basically as a treaty, 13 many nations, but that really wasn't working out too well, was it? It was not because the states were really operating kind of on their own. There was no national government. In fact, I put wrote in the book that, that at France was at one time thinking of sending 13 separate ambassadors to the 13 separate states. So there was no cohesion um, at the time. It was a very loose confederation, but there were bitter rivalries economically between the states. So the founding fathers basically thought that uh, a national government, a stronger national government, should be constituted, and that's why they formed the Constitutional Convention in 1787. Yeah, and in this, you know, because we didn't have an army, we didn't have a uh, navy, we had no way to protect our borders. As I said, it was like 13 different separate uh, things. Uh, but here, with, with I want to get a little bit of an idea of the coloring, like, comparing George Washington to George Mason, because uh, here Washington was tall, statuesque, very handsome man. Mason was a short, pudgy little guy. Um, Washington was sort of loud. Uh, Mason was a soft voice. Matter of fact, Mason was able to uh, get things done far better because of his soft voice rather than using something more bombastic. Yeah, they were very, um, very different physically. Um, Washington preferred the outdoors. He preferred um, activity. Mason was much more uh, bookish, much more scholarly. He preferred reading and writing and his uh, study at Gunston Hall. Uh, Washington was much more of an outdoorsman, uh, a sportsman, and certainly a war hero. Um, physically, uh Mason was sort of short, not not quite six foot, a little pudgy, but again, all of his activities were scholarly and intellectual in nature, unlike Washington's. Now, there's also similarities between the two men. Uh, both, boy, as boys, were orphaned. Um, both wanted to attend college but didn't. Um, Mason was basically self-taught. In, in very many ways, if it wasn't for his uncle's library, you know, we would wonder whether or not we would have had a man such as George Mason, Mason that helped form this nation. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I wrote in the book that um, Jefferson uh, went to William & Mary, Madison went to Princeton, and uh, Washington went to war. So Basically, Mason was self-taught. He never went to college. He never went to law school, unlike Jefferson. But his uncle had one of the vast libraries in Virginia at the time, over 1,700 volumes. And most of it was early English history, early English law, uh, reading things like Coke and Rousseau and Montesquieu and Locke. So Mason was self-taught in the English law and in the English history, and that's where he really became uh, a scholar in his early uh, boyhood. Well, what's amazing is is that his knowledge of the law, because he was some, someone that just loved to delve into a book. He would spend 
hours upon hours in his study, you know, reading and writing. But his knowledge was so great that he was often, you know, uh, consulted as if he was a full attorney. You know, people would have the, him write up documents for him. Uh, he uh, an amazing, amazing legal mind without the degree. He did. He served as a uh, actually a justice of the peace at one time, and Washington um, really called on him several times to write legal documents, both for himself and for his relatives. But he never went to law school. But uh, George Washington basically relied on him for his great intellectual capacity. He knew that he was a scholar and he had read all of this English law and English history, especially the English Bill of Rights and the Magna Carta, which formed some of his ideas that he wrote in the Virginia Declaration of Rights that eventually became the precursor for the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights. Now, when you when you describe George Mason, you don't start off with boom, he was born. You go into the family history and show that there's a certain type of personality in this family. You know, there were people that were prudent, people that were frugal with their money, and yet from they had the ability to amass great wealth. And when I, I read about how much property he had at the time of his death, it was mind-blowing. You know, you would think from it, a humble beginning, he would, he would amass so much wealth. It was. It was incredible. Um, he at one time owned almost 15,000 acres in northern Virginia, which is now uh, Fairfax County. But when his father died um, at a very early age, it left him uh, as a boy of 10. So his mother basically raised him and his younger brother and younger sister. But she was a very shrewd um, business person and businesswoman, and she bought um, thousands of acres, hundreds of acres, both for his siblings. And eventually they inherited this uh, property, and they actually became as wealthy as George Mason did later on in life. But Mason knew that uh, property was the way to wealth, uh, especially in the 18th century. Now, what I found amazing is that, in a way, he was responsible for opening up the lands to the West. You know, he and several other people, uh, they wanted to expand outward and westward uh, with the company he had for settlement in Ohio. But at that point, up to that point, Mason and everyone else at that time was for king and country. Because of that company and because of his knowledge of law began the stirrings of a rebel. What happened that caused him to decide to rebel and start the revolution? Well, one of the things is that uh, they formed the Ohio Company and actually George Washington was one of the officers in the Ohio Company. And it was basically a land kind of venture capital company to acquire um, lands in the western um, area, now known as really Pittsburgh and in the Allegheny Mountains. And they originally had a grant of land from the king, but eventually um, after the French and Indian War broke out, the king revoked their charter and revoked their land grant. 
Um, and that really uh, upset both Mason and Washington and in the, the entire Ohio company. And that was one of the final straws that Mason thought that the king and English parliament had too much power over the colonies, and they had no self-government, self-rule. So that was one of the things that really broke the camel's back for Mason when they revoked his uh, land grant uh, for the Ohio Company. Now, while all this is going on, Mason is courting this young lady, this uh, young woman, Anne. They end up getting married. What I found amazing is that they were married, what was it, 23 years, had 13 children. I, I, th- I, that was a phenomenal. That was phenomenal. Actually, they had 12 children. Nine only survived to adulthood. Um, she died uh, with complications from uh, her last pregnancy at the age of 39. She gave birth to twins, and she became very, very sick. And she died and left Mason, a widower, with basically 12 children to raise by himself um, when she died at the age of 39. So that was one of the reasons that he was not more of a public figure. He did not really want to leave his children, leave his estate, leave Gunston Hall because he felt responsible, as certainly a father would, to raise these children, and he basically did not have a wife to do it with. Now, you mentioned Gunston Hall several times, and this is a uh, a house that he custom-built with outer buildings and everything. He was the architect. Not only was he learned in law, but he also was learned in farming, the agricultural, as well as architecture. And he, so much so that he was there at the site as they were building, mixing the mortar and choosing specific colors and paints. It's an, a magnificent, magnificent-looking house. It looks very modest on the outside until you walk inside. And he d- designed it in a way to fit his family. He did. He was uh, really an amazing man. Uh, like Jefferson, he was kind of a, a universal man. He knew a lot about a lot of different subjects, farming, science, architecture, political philosophy. So he actually oversaw the building of his family home that he lived in and with his wife and his 12 children, Gunston Hall. And it's a beautiful, it's not as big as um, Mount Vernon or Monticello, Jefferson's home, but it's a beautiful uh, home right overlooking the Potomac River. And he used to take walks in the gardens, the manicured gardens, out overlooking the river to contemplate his readings and his writings. And in fact, I wrote in the book that um, sometimes after dinner, when he would take these walks, he would be so mesmerized and lost in thought that the children dare not uh, disturb him when he was taking these walks. So he loved his uh, Gunston Hall, he loved his mansion, and he loved the solitude that uh, it really brought him. Well, you know, with him, you know, with Gunston Hall, it ended up where he ended up with a underground and off the books economy. 
because nearby towns were starting to sprout up. You know, these plantations needed staff. They needed people to supply them. Uh, and what was amazing is how involved the women were in this off-the-books economy. So if there was a need for soap, one woman would start to make soap. If there was need for uh, uh, knitting or whatever, they would start to have this off-the-books economy where the community shared in different chores and would swap out. So if I needed, say, baking done, I'd swap for soap and so on and so forth. Yes, they um, they did have that. Um, his wife made soap. Uh, Jefferson's wife actually made beer at uh, Monticello, but they would trade um, livestock like chickens and poultry and eggs sometimes with the slaves. So you're right. It was a, a basic economy. It was a working plantation. It was a working farm, but they liked to do a lot of their own products, uh, make some of their own clothes, make some of their own soap. Certainly on the farm, they made almost all the food that they ate. Um, so it was really a, a working farm and a plantation. And the women were not without influence. They may not have been formally educated, but they were politically aware also. So they would run the households, and the men would you know, do their political thing with England, but they, they, they had their finger on the pulse. They did, and really, um, you know, she, his wife, Anne Eilbeck, was really his, the love of his life and the center of his world for, for 20 years. She would accompany him to uh, Williamsburg when he uh, was basically a congressman uh, for the House of Burgesses. Um, but she actually uh, ran the household. Um, she had 12 children, um, nine who lived to adulthood. Uh, and she cared for a working farm. She oversaw basically some of the farm products and some of the farming. So she was very vital to not only Mason, but the entire plantation, the entire farm, and the entire Mason uh, family. And here you think, you know, you've got a gentleman that's putting together the Bill of Rights who, who believes in freedom and liberty, and yet he remained a slaveholder. That was certainly the question and certainly what historians look kind of in the 21st century to really criticize and castigate the founders. But I'm not sure that's a, a fair criticism um, in the 18th century. You know, almost every one of the founding fathers in Virginia was a slave owner. But both he and Jefferson were very, very um, in favor of some sort of emancipation or abolition of the slaves eventually. They just could not uh, find a way to do it economically in their lifetime. And in fact, one of the reasons Mason refused to sign the Constitution in Philadelphia in 1787 was that the Constitution sanctioned the importation of slaves for the next 20 years, and he was adamantly against that, and that's one of the reasons he refused to sign the Constitution. But eventually he was going to uh, free his slaves, find a system where the slaves could be free, but they just couldn't do it 
they thought, in their lifetime with their economy. And they wrote over and over again, this is going to be the next generation. The next generation unborn would have to fix this issue. Absolutely. Now, they had the revolution, and during the revolution, the church in the United States was the Episcopal Church, or the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And the uh, Church of England kind of like <laughs> split, because now, now you have the Episcopal Church of America compared and away from there. And they wanted to punish the pastors that served Church of England opposing the revolution, but George Mason came up with the idea of religious freedom and did not want to see these guys punished. That is true. He wrote in the um, Virginia Declaration of Rights um, that there should be a free exercise of religion, and he did not think there should be a state-sponsored church and in fact he agreed with Jefferson with the the wall of separation between the church and the state and he was very very much a religious man very deeply religious very deeply christian he would start his morning off with morning prayers he would lead a family prayer at dinner um but he basically believed that uh, every man and woman should have the free exercise of their own religion. And in fact, when he did marry the second time, about 10 years later, um, his wife, Sarah Brent, was a Catholic, and Catholics were really uh, looked down upon in the 18th century. But he had the fortitude to marry her and, uh, in fact, that probably fueled some of his ideas about free exercise of religion. Now, I mentioned the plantation and the fact that George Washington, as well as he, were very much involved in farming and agriculture. Uh, at that time, you know, you had tobacco was the crop that was being grown there. And he noticed that, you know, the soil was not all that great after a couple of plantings. He came up with the idea, or actually was picking it up, new ideas about crop rotation and growing wheat when wheat was not a popular crop to grow. He was able to make a profit out of something that everyone looked down their nose at. He he really was. You know, Virginia was known as the tobacco colony, and in fact, uh, some planters even paid their taxes with uh, tobacco. Um, So that was the king crop, the cash crop. But both he and Washington found that it was very, very hard on the soil. So they eventually turned to wheat um, as a product to export and sell to England, and it was very, very successful. But he did have a, a tobacco farm and a tobacco plantation, the same as Jefferson and the same as Washington. But all three of them found that it was very, very hard on the soil, and it took a long time from beginning to end to really make a profit uh, with tobacco. It's funny. When I moved from uh, New York down here to the south, you know, you couldn't miss all the tobacco fields field after field after field and today you you don't see it you know, they're all gone um, yeah there might be some in maybe North Carolina but I'm not sure 
in Virginia, but it was um, certainly that was the king crop in the 18th century for Virginia. Yeah. Now, um, it was George Washington that kind of roped uh, Mason into going to the Constitutional Convention. Uh, they went together, uh, but there was a lot of differences between it. You know, because Mason didn't have a college education and neither did Washington, they were looked down at. Um, at one point, uh, who was it that said it? Uh, I'm trying to remember who it was, but thought that Washington was um, Ill- illiterate, unread, unlearned for his station Adams. and reputation. Yeah. I'm looking, thank you, John, John Adams. Adams. I was looking yeah. at my notes here. John Adams. Uh, what a snob. <laughs> but, you know, Washington conversely, Washington conversely thought that Americans should not go over to Europe to study, that doing that would corrupt them from the ideals of freedom. Right. Um, he was um, really not an intellectual, even though he was probably the greatest American who le- ever lived because he was the first president. Mason was much more scholarly, much more intellectual, much more reading and writing these English jurists. And that's why Washington really wasn't going to go to the Constitutional Convention and basically kind of talk Mason into going along with him because he needed his wisdom and his guidance, and he knew that Mason was very well-respected among English jurists and among the Virginia jurists, uh, along with him and Patrick Henry and Thomas Jefferson. They were the three intellectuals, and Washington really was not going to go to the convention unless Mason went. So they both agreed um, to go, and they eventually went but they had a very, very bitter split um, after three months in Philadelphia. Well, you know, Mason had already penned the articles um, for Virginia, for the state of Virginia. He already had in mind exactly what to do. Now, they get to the convention. They're going back and forth. Uh, Mason keeps on arguing to include these Bill of Rights in there. And James Madison is his biggest critic, vehemently against it. You know, one is a Federalist and the other one is not. You know, you've got Madison Federalist versus Mason. And the Constitution, you know, they they passed it. Mason refuses to sign it because there's no Bill of Rights. He felt that government had too much power. There was no guarantee for personal freedoms and liberties, such as speech, religion, and all the things that we enjoy today. Mason had already written these for Virginia. They've already been passed. They were signed and passed, but yet no one wanted to listen. That's that's exactly right. Um, both Madison and Washington thought that uh, a separate document for a Bill of Rights was really superfluous. They thought that that was assumed in individual rights and states' rights. And Mason said, no, we have to have a document that states these, enumerates these rights in writing that are clear. He was always afraid that the presidency that they had uh, constituted, that they had really invented in the Constitution, was going to be too powerful and end up like a king, like King George, 
the third that they had just broken off with. So he was very much in favor of individual rights, individual liberty, very restrained national government. And Madison and Washington were just the opposite. They wanted a very strong centralized government with a very strong presidency. And in fact, one of, I write in my book, one of Mason's very um, inventive techniques was not to have one person as president, but a three-member executive council. But that never really got off the ground and was never passed. But at the end of the convention, um, he was one of the few holdouts that did not sign the Constitution because his clarion call was there must be a Bill of Rights, there must be a document protecting individual rights, and the Constitution did not have it um, at the time of the signing. Well, this then goes to show the stark differences between the two Georges, George Mason and George Washington, because Mason believed in loyalty to, to your beliefs and loyalty to your friends, where George Washington was loyalty to party above all. So when they had that split, you know, George Washington just cut off all relationships with him, basically. But that wasn't the only person that drew the, uh, that was, um, my words are coming out backwards. I apologize. The, Mason is not the only one to draw the anger because he also had a breaking with Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine had been arrested in France and Paine felt that Washington did absolutely nothing to help free him. So, you know, he made a couple of enemies there. George Washington basically at the end of his life um, was estranged from all the Virginia patriots. He broke off the relationship with um, George Mason after the Constitutional Convention. Uh, Thomas Paine, as you pointed out, was bitterly against him. Um, he actually had a falling out with James Madison a few years later, and he had a bitter split with Thomas Jefferson when Jefferson served in his administration as the first Secretary of State. So George Washington was very stoic, but he looked at these um, political differences as personal disloyalty to him, and he valued loyalty uh, above all else. And he took this these political differences as being disloyal to him, and that's really why he ended up with really no no friends, no political friends, certainly. You know, it's funny when you think about how much the words of George Mason that he had written prior in not just the documents he created for the state of Virginia, but in other documents he created. Um, there was one that he wrote the extracts from the Virginia charters with some remarks on them. Um, the document, you know, put claim to people having individual rights and freedoms uh, under God by the laws of nature and nations. And so many of these words you can find within the Declaration of Independence, as well as the Constitution, words that he wrote years before. That is true. He, you know, Everyone forgets he wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights in 1776, 12 years before the Bill of Rights that was eventually passed at the Constitutional Convention um, after in 1791. 
but it was Mason who wrote that, you know, quote, religion uh, is what we get from our creator, uh, and the manner of discharging it is the free exercise of every man and woman. So he believed that the creator, God, gave each man and woman natural rights that could not be restrained or taken away by the government. Again, he was a very deeply religious person. Uh, he prayed uh, every night. He baptized his children um, in one of the silver monties that uh, he had at Gunston Hall. So he was a very, very deeply religious man, much more so than uh, Jefferson was. And he really believed in a creator and the creator, God, giving mankind these natural rights and natural individual liberties. Yeah, because he and George Washington belonged to the same church. And the two of them served on the church boards, also helped to build several new churches. That is how much involved he was. He was instrumental in, in certain instances. He was. They both served at uh, Truro uh, Parish in Alexandria. Uh, they both were vestrymen uh, for the church, and they both uh, very um, were very involved and very involved in the community and co- in the community of the the church-going people and building these churches. And uh, Mason was very, very um, much very benevolent. Um, he gave money to the poor. He saw that the church um, did things for the poor, and he was very benevolent uh, in that in that way of life. And he believed that he believed that you know public service was a way to give back to the people, uh, even though he did not want to serve uh, in public office. He preferred to be again with his family, with his books. And in fact, I say in the book, right in the book, he was actually named and appointed to be a U.S. Senator um, after the Constitutional Convention, and he uh, refused the appointment. Uh, he did, did not want to be involved anymore in politics after really his bitter disappointment at the Constitutional Convention. No, it's funny because when you think about the birth of our nation and the today's Tea Party, taxed enough already, the idea of taxation without representation was born from the brains of Patrick Henry and George Mason. And because at that time you had the Stamp Act going on, you had the 1764 Sugar Act. You know, he, the germ of revolution wasn't in him as a young man, but when these things started to hit, the colonists, uh, with the brain of Patrick Henry and George Mason, came the revolution. Yes, absolutely. The taxes, the Stamp Act, the Townsend Duties, the Sugar Act, these were all taxes that the colonists and people like Mason thought that Parliament did not have the power to to weigh on them, that only the colonists had the power to tax themselves and he really, you know, that was the germ of his his Virginia Declaration of Rights, uh, freedom, freedom to represent themselves, taxation with representation. But you know, his his biggest really political mantra was that government ought to be for the benefit of the people. It's derived from the people, and not vice versa. And they thought that you know England, 
you know, was putting themselves in their pockets just too much, and finally it was it was just too much, and the the revolution occurred. That's funny because he he wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights, in which he wrote, and if these words sound familiar to anyone, it, they are. He wrote, when any government shall be found inadequate or contrary to these purposes, a majority of the community has an indefensible, inalienable, indefensible right to reform, alter, or abolish it in such manner as shall be judged most conductive to the public will. That is, that's the Declaration of Independence. That that is that that is basically saying that they had a right to rebel against a really what they felt was a false and in, unjust uh, government. And the people had the right to change the government um, if they thought that it was not being fair. And they didn't think England was being fair to them. And that sparked a revolution. And it was just an incredible story of our the founding of our country. You know, it's funny because all these laws that he was studying, they've been in place. People knew about these different laws and different principles and different ideas. But the, what makes Mason unique is he took that leap. He was able to take them, put them into actual working form, coalesce them. He ended up thinking outside of the box and giving us the basis for this nation. He did. He was. He wrote. He read every constitution there was before. He actually wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights. He read the English Bill of Rights, which I think was in 1689. He read the Magna Carta. He read, and I talk in the book about all of his English philosophers that talked about natural rights. So he was well versed um, in these documents, in these natural rights. Uh, in the Liberties when he wrote the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which I think every every person should study and everyone should read. It should be mandatory reading, certainly in high school and college, because it's just a phenomenal document. And it basically is the springboard of all of our mar- modern rights um, in society that we have. Yeah, and if it was, it was because of him that we have the idea that an elected official should hold no more than one office at a time, that there should be a separation of powers, and that there should be term limits, that you were there to go and do a job for a short period of time and rotate out so that no one ends up like we have with Nancy Pelosi, staying there forever. <laughs> yeah, no, he was he was the biggest believer, and that was one of the, the fundamental principles that he believed in three branches of government, um, executive, legislature, and judicial, to check and balance each other. It really was in his imagination that the, the House of Representatives should be actually more powerful than the Senate because he believed that the House of Representatives was really the people's house, and he believed that the individual, the people, should run the government. And that was really the reason he came up with a three-member executive council instead of a single president. He thought that a single president might be too powerful, might devolve into a a monarchy or a dictatorship. So he thought a three-person executive council should really 
being the executive uh, branch of government, but that was one of his main principles that each branch of government should check and balance each other. You know, it's funny because um, who was it that codified the English common law? Was that King Harold? Uh, there's a college in upstate New York named after him, I believe. Uh, I believe and right. when you read those, if you read the Bill of Rights, and it's been a number of years since um, I read the English common law that he codified, but how similar it is to a lot of things that Mason included. The right to bear arms. That's in the English Bill of Rights, the right to own property and to be secure in that property. He took them where we knew that the British government was ignoring these laws, the English common law, by building soldiers in our our homes, by confiscating property, uh, by confiscating weapons also. He realized British common law was being violated, so he deliberately included it in written form in his Bill of Rights. He did. In fact, I think it's, it's paragraph 13. You know, the the English um, army were quartering uh, their army and their troops in some of the houses without, you know, any consent or any permission. So basically, Mason wrote the words for the Second Amendment that were adopted 12 years later into the Bill of Rights. And he said, a, a well-regulated militia composed of the body of the people trained to arms is the proper, natural, and safe defense of a free state. And a lot of people you know, try and interpret that, meaning that only the militia could have arms. But that was not his intent, and certainly not the intent of the Bill of Rights. He believed in individual rights, individual liberty individuals owning firearms so they could protect themselves against uh, an army or a monarch or a dictator or the government basically uh, taking over. So he actually wrote what became the, the Second Amendment, which is so you know debated today. Uh, absolutely. You know, uh you have in your book where Jefferson wrote in his autobiography about Mason that he was his elocution was neither flowing nor smooth, but his language was strong, his manner most impressive, and strengthened by a dash of biting cynicism when provocation made it seasonable. What a character. In other words, what a way to say he's a <laughs> character, but he knows what he's talking about. He he does, and again, he was very uh, Mason was very very well respected in his own time. Um, Madison said that quote Mason possessed the greatest talents for debate of any man I have ever seen or heard speak. Patrick Henry pronounced him the greatest statesman I ever knew, and Jefferson later complimented his mind as great and powerful. So these were some of the most um, brilliant people. Uh, in the colonies at the time, and they respected Mason more than almost anybody. Williams, I just want to say that I enjoy hearing about George Mason. You and Annie were spot on. He is one of the unsung patriots of his time and uh, throughout history. I found him very interesting as a historical figure, and I even included him as a character in one of my historical novels. And we'll 
what I found unique was that um, there was uh, a woman who had purchased my book and read it, and I ran into her a couple of months later, and she told me that um, as a history teacher, she had never heard of George Mason, and that um, she found him to be, you know, worthy of being up there with Jefferson and Madison and Washington. But I felt good because, you know, she did learn something she didn't know before. But as an educator, she should have known about George Mason. But it just goes to show that you and Annie were spot on. You know, a lot of people what? don't know about George Mason and his contributions. Well, I hope my book changes that um, because he really should um, get the credit that he's due in history. He was just a remarkable person and a remarkable mind. He was. Well, you know, you, you think about it. You know, we know the outcome of what happened with the American Revolution. We know that the United States of America has been formed because of that. But our founding fathers had no idea what the outcome was going to be. They were just making it up. They were just going along. And yeah. we do have this form of government because the brilliant mind of Mason foresaw the need of structure. He saw that if you left a vacuum, we're going to have anarchy and we're just going to fall back under tyranny again. He saw that need and he said, we've got to have something in place once the fighting ends. Yes, absolutely. He wrote um, both the his Virginia Declaration of Rights, but then two weeks later he wrote the Constitution for Virginia, which set out the structure of the government. So it was one thing that he realized to have a revolution, to overthrow their political bands, their political dictatorship, but there had to be something in place after that if by some miracle that they got their freedom, that there had to be a structure of government. So he also wrote one of the first constitutions um, in our country, the Virginia Constitution, which again 12 years later in Philadelphia um, was kind of the, the, the blueprint for the Constitution itself. Yeah, because John Adams did it for Massachusetts. Meanwhile, George Mason was doing it for Virginia. So we had it on both sides of the Mason-Dixon line. But the, the funny, not the funny, but the most interesting part is, you know, most countries were monarchies. We didn't know any other form of government. You had a king who sat above parliament. You had a, a prime minister. Here he created a whole new structure, new phrases. Were, were not used. Senator, not a new word, a Greek word, from their form of government, House of Representatives, not a House of Lords, a House of Representatives of the people, you know, co-equal branches of the government. He brought up the idea of impeaching, you know, that, saying that you can remove someone from power. They are not uh, d appointed divinely by God. Absolutely. Yeah. He came up with these new ideal <clears throat> concepts. That he did. From he did. In fact, he, he wrote some of the most famous words in our Constitution. He actually uh, wrote the words high crimes and misdemeanors um, in the impeachment clause. He actually defined the, uh, the word treason, uh, writing the famous words aid and comfort to the enemy. 
and uh, he basically wrote the oath of office that the president uh, takes when he's sworn in on the uh, Capitol steps. So a lot of people don't know that Mason wrote these famous words, and the most famous words Jefferson borrowed from Mason, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those were George Mason's original words. Well, you write in your book that he had a dual purpose in creating the Constitution the way he did. What was that dual purpose? Really, the dual purpose was to write um, about the natural rights, the freedoms, the individual liberties, but also to give a structure to government. He firmly believed, and he wrote, that the government is and ought to be instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the people. So he was always into individual liberties, individual rights over the government. The government was constituted to benefit the individual person and not vice versa. And that was his clarion call, and that's the reason that he beat his drum for a Bill of Rights that eventually two years Three years later, in 1791, really a year before his death, the Bill of Rights, the first 12 amendments that were uh, eventually passed by Congress, were passed because of George Mason. It was really his call um, throughout the country that there should be a Declaration of Rights, there should be a Bill of Rights. And eventually he persuaded Madison and Madison persuaded Washington that a Bill of Rights should be amended to the Constitution. Well, he is an interesting man, and he was highly private in a lot of ways. Like you said, very, very family-oriented, very, very religious. But considering the health at the time, the type of health care they had, he was not a well man. And yet, despite all this, despite the illnesses that would lay him low for weeks on end, despite of having a wife die and several children of his die, you know, he even had to take care of his slaves to the point of inoculating them against smallpox uh, and local villages. Uh, he had such foresight and for such a humble, humble man and what a wonderful life and what gift he has given us that we here in the future do not fully appreciate. William, you have written a marvelous book. Thank you. I'm looking at the clock within our last 10 minutes of the show, and uh, my co-host will tell you there's still half a little task sitting here in the book. We haven't gone through half the things I noted as things I thought were important to be aware of. Well, George Mason was really an amazing man, and, and I hope um, people read the book, and I hope they learn more about him because he really had some of the most major influences in our political writings. And I say that you know our country was really founded on three revered pieces of paper, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights. And George Mason basically wrote the blueprint to all three of those major political writings, and he doesn't get credit for it. Uh, Madison and Jefferson get the credit, but George Mason does not get the credit, and I hope my book changes a lot of minds, and uh, I hope he gets the credit that I really think he is due. Well, you know, i got to tell you, I cut my teeth 
on the Constitution reading a book by, um, oh, good Lord, my mind just went, last name is Brodus, uh, the biography of the Constitution. Uh, my copy, I think, is like 1964. Um, Louise Brodus and her, uh, Brodus, good Lord, I'm going to forget who the authors are, but it was that long ago in the 1960s I read it. <laughs> so I was aware of a lot of the background and history. <laughs> I don't want to give my age away. Really, don't ask the lady that. Um, so uh, when I read your book, it colored in a lot of things because a lot of people didn't know much about George Mason, his personal papers. And there were several autobiographies prior to this one, uh, but you used your imagination to fill in those blanks, and you did it with such beauty and such color. And uh, this book has pictures, folks. <laughs> so I'm urging people to pick up the book, George Mason, The Founding Father Who Gave Us the Bill of Rights. And like Judge Janine Pirro said to me when I had her on the show, you read the book. <laughs> I can attest that I've read the book. Uh, it's well, wonderful, and thank you for it. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's available on uh, yeah, and, Amazon, and it's on Audible uh, and also. And Reagan Re, Barnes & Noble, every place. It just came okay. out two weeks ago, and Reagan Re History is the publisher. Right, and there's a link on the show page because most of the people listen to the show in the uh, archives. All they have to do is click on the name of the book. It'll take them to the book where they can purchase it. Thank you very much, and God bless you, sir. Thank you, Annie. Thank you for having me. It's Take our care. pleasure. Our pleasure. Oh, man, what a wonderful, wonderful interview that was. <clears throat> like I said, it is a great book, and he adds color to it so that you understand what was going on at the time. <clears throat> and one of the biggest critics, criticisms of our founding fathers is that they owned slaves. But if you look at the, what was going on in history at that time, what the life was, what our founding fathers were trying to do, you can understand this was a lifestyle, but because he wrote this and because he did believe that eventually the slaves will be freed, mm -hmm. they just could not do everything all at once. He realized it was an issue that had to be addressed further down and, the road. And see, one thing a lot of people don't realize, some of these guys inherit a house and or plantation full of slaves. And I mean, they were treated as property so you couldn't just let them go, you know, and most of them had no place to go. But uh, that didn't mean that they were malevolent, you know, masters or whatever. And in time, you know, that most of them all hoped that we would rid this country of slavery. Absolutely. And as you said, he was instrumental in stopping and trying to prevent further importation of mm -hmm. slaves. He says, we got people here now. What are we going to do with them? And they actually built whole villages around them where they lived, where they worked on the plantation, but they lived privately, too, uh, with their families. And there was certain morals and ethics in handling them. It was the abuse that we see people bring up uh, in today's history. But we'll get to our last few minutes, Curtis. We will be back here again on Friday, and I forget who I have already lined up. Uh, but you know it'll always be an exciting show. Oh, yeah. So uh, that said, I want to thank everyone that joined us up in the chat rooms and everywhere else. Um, it has been a blast, and it's fun having you with us, Curtis. Well, it's my pleasure, as always, to be here at your studio. <laughs> 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 <Forecast>. <laughs> 
while my husband is cuddled up on the couch with your wife. <laughs> what a scene. <laughs> what, what, what a thought, what a scene. So I'm going to be closing out with the song. Oh, here we go. Red Tail Skirmish uh, that was composed back in 2012 specifically for the Tuskegee Airmen. So sit back, enjoy the last few minutes with Red Tail Skirmish being played by the Air Force Bands. 